just cutting it off the top to say that this is going to be a full spoiler discussion of this book. If you're interested to hear the first few stories, we do tend to only spoil the story that we're on at that moment. So we're not going to discuss like the end of the book or anything like that right away. So if you want a brief sample, you can listen to that. But overall, this is going to be a uh, spoiler filled. It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Brianna and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the book from 2022 How High We Go in the Dark. returning again for our little i guess we don't have a name for our little book reviews like with johnny and isaac we call it the the teeny book club it's called the brianna forcing caleb to read books that she likes book club because the whole purpose of this book club is just for me to get you to read books that i enjoy and do a podcast with you afterwards because that's the only way to get you to read them (laughs) yeah i've not been reading as many books as i used to over the past couple months. I'm not sure why I've fallen off so much, but... Over the past couple of years? Yeah, I guess ever since I stopped working my my night job, where I would listen to books a lot, I'd constantly be going through them. Even when, even when you worked night jobs, like, maybe you read a lot, but you certainly didn't read any books that I asked you to read. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's you, fair. I think you've read, uh, one? The Girl with All the Gifts? Yeah, I read that one, um... Yeah, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Well, I've just got too many too many other books to read, but but here we are today <laughs> to discuss this one that you wanted to read. How High We Go in the Dark. Which, by the way, the third story in this, this collection, I thought was titled that until I went back to write my notes. And I'm like, oh wait, it wasn't titled it that. It was originally titled that. Oh, okay, it makes sense. Yeah, it said that in the in the back of the book, which I know you read the audiobook, so you wouldn't have seen that. But in the like acknowledgments or whatever... Because a lot of these, a lot of these, because this is like an anthology of short stories, and uh, a lot of them were previously published, uh, but then obviously the author went in and like changed details when he put them together. That's interesting. That actually makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking about some of them and how they, they work together. And some of them especially felt like they were kind of repeating the same kind of notes. And I was like, oh, I don't know why this was placed where it was, but I guess we'll get into all that stuff as we get into it more yeah i'm i'd be interested to hear what you think about the specific ones but we'll go in order i guess and then we we can also talk about the book as a whole once we've talked about all the stories too first i was curious why you selected this book like why why'd you read it in the first place because it only came out what a few months ago january january 18th sure um well i i always read new releases but um I did read this one faster because usually they like sit on my list for a while. So why did I read it so quickly? Um, I mean, I use like uh, reading social media, like uh, 
Goodreads and Storygraph. Um, and so I saw people that I follow uh, reviewing it well. So, hmm. I mean, I can't remember because I just kind of like chose it randomly at the time. Uh, but I assume it's because I uh, thought it was, thought it looked good, thought it would be something that I'd be interested in and saw a lot of good reviews. Uh, I really like reading reviews and some of them resonated with me a lot. Uh, I originally re read this book. Um, I can't see the date in my notes of when I started reading it, but I originally finished it the 28th of February. And then we mm. reread it again for this podcast, obviously. Yeah, maybe that's why I was thinking it's February. No, that's interesting. And do you read a lot of kind of short collections? Because really the only short collections that I read tended to be Stephen King works. And a lot of that stuff... I mean, there was a couple of pearls in there, but most of it was pretty crappy, so... Um, I, I personally love short stories. Um, I haven't read a lot of them because it's uh, something that I kind of newly enjoy. So mm. I haven't read a lot, but uh, mainly horror and science fiction short stories I particularly like a lot. But I believe I actually did not know that this was uh, an anthology going into it. I just kind of had a general, like, oh, this is a story about a plague, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's really interesting. There's lots of interesting themes. It's a nice it's a nice story. So I was like, oh, I'll read it. And then I was surprised to find that it was kind of an anthology of shorts. I mean, it is an anthology of shorts, but with, like, a cohesive storyline throughout, which I don't think I've read something like that before. Yeah, the only thing that I can think of that reminded me of this kind of structure is uh, World War Z where it kind of takes place in the af aftermath of a big plague and an interview going around and discussing like people's lives with them. And so, so that's, that's interesting. I kind of wondered if this author was a fan of that book, but, but I guess jumping into the 14 stories that they were, we'll probably dive deeper into some of them than others. Cause some of them are pretty short or maybe we don't have a ton to say about all of them, but, but just to run through them, we start with 3000 years beneath a eulogy. It takes place on a Siberian base. Um, and it's mainly about a dad trying to come to terms with his daughter who died at that base. And there's a little bit of somewhat investigating, like, oh, what happened to her? And what was she, uh, anthropologist? Like someone who studies human history? Either way, she was some, some sort of scientist. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not very detail-oriented that way. She was, she was a scientist. She was trying to combat climate change in some way. That was, like, the details that I hung on to. Yeah, and they're doing some sort of dig, and they found this body, and it's it's basically the the father going through his daughter's stuff and her works and trying to reconnect to her and, and try to understand her because she abandoned her daughter, sort of, left uh, the daughter with with him and his wife, and kind of abandoned them too, and they didn't. He felt like he didn't really understand her, and so as he was trying to reconnect with her, in the background, there's this kind of beginning threat of this virus that's eventually going to take over and kind of be the whole focus of the book but mainly this first story and a lot of the stories are much more human focused and the the virus aspect is kind of more just the the background that they have to kind of live through so but again if, if you have some more details like this one's a little bit more foggy in my brain since it was yeah, like a month ago when i listened to it yeah well the way that i would say it is um you know it's about cliff struggling to understand his daughter um clara mm. and uh yeah he felt that she cared a lot more about uh like the bigger picture like the environment and saving the environment 
rather than the smaller details like her her life and her family and she dies uh, on the Siberian base uh, when she discovers the the body of a 30,000 year old kind of like prehistoric human and at his funeral or sorry at her funeral her boss uh, comes up to Cliff and offers for him to come to Siberia and to continue her work and he agrees to do that because well I'm sure partially because he's interested in the work to a degree and curious about it but also because he wants to understand like what it was that she felt could be more important than connecting with her daughter and with being with her loved ones um and while he's there it kind of goes a little bit into the past and his memories like talk uh showing us times when like she would be home with her daughter for a little bit of time but she'd always leave right away and she'd always be going on to the next thing even uh when her her husband the dad of her kid died uh she didn't come home in time for the funeral even though they delayed it uh she still didn't come home in time uh so it just goes into a lot of him just trying to understand what made it more important and he has her journal and he goes through her things and he he writes in her journal to her like stories to her which kind of helps him to like process her death in a way Mm. and uh the story also goes into uh like the 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 body that they found annie uh is what they call her and uh that's kind of interesting because uh like like i said she's like a 30,000 year old child that's like under the ice and there's a lot of interesting things about her like her she's like wrapped in a blanket that has that's covered in like seashells and stuff from all different parts of the world that aren't obviously native to siberia and when they look into her dna they find that uh, she actually has DNA that's similar to, like, a starfish or an octopus, and that she possessed, like, healing abilities and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, they find that, uh, like, the virus comes from her, essentially, or from whatever's in the ice, but most likely from her and, and the other people that were, like, in the ice with her. Yeah, I remember thinking all those details were cool, and I, and we spent so much of the book just away from her i was like oh are we ever gonna like go back to that and kind of get an explanation about what all that meant and so it was cool to to read it today and finally get that explanation Mm -hmm. but they certainly waited a long time yeah because at the end we finally understand all that but i think i think it makes more sense to wait till till the till the last story to discuss that stuff but i thought it was important to bring up here because yeah and because i obviously because i read this book uh, this was the second time I read this book. I knew to like take note of all those little details because I knew like what was going to come up later on. So I have a lot of notes for that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the story ends uh, basically with Cliff. Um, he has this little, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to say it, but he has like a little kind of Japanese figure of hers. Oh, yeah. Um, and he, he takes it and he throws it into the crater where she dies kind of like symbolically hoping that it will help somehow because at this point in the in the story everybody has kind of gotten gotten this virus and they're scared and you know they don't know if they're they're ever going to leave leave where they are or if they're just going to die there and that's kind of where that story ends 
Yeah, and I like that this one actually had more of like a, a bit of tension to it, like it felt like a little mini like horror story. Even if it wasn't really focusing on the horror, it was more mm -hmm. focusing on the, the family drama. We don't really get a lot of that in the rest of the book, so it's... Yeah, because because you know that uh that the plague is there in the background and uh I mean they throughout the story are, are hopeful that, you know, it's gonna be nothing, it's no big deal, like whatever. What are the odds that it would be something that bad? But obviously like with the context of we know what kind of book we're reading we know that it is going to be bad mm -hmm. yeah i think it was a good way to start because a lot of the themes in this one like you mentioned she had that little kind of special totem mm -hmm. and there's a lot of that trying to reconnect to your family stuff we definitely see a lot of those repeating themes throughout the rest of the book there's also mention of like the purple pendant that she has and that's mentioned a few times throughout the book so uh that's oh. it doesn't come in very much but it's important to note because uh it is mentioned in this story that she has it and that that pendant is mentioned a couple times throughout the book and i and i can point out when when it's mentioned again oh sure yeah i don't think i remember it in that being in that one yeah so um what happened was cliff uh when he got there he asked a couple of the people at the uh outpost like oh claire always had this this purple necklace like have you seen it and they were like oh like she always had it on her, but it wasn't on her body when she died. When when we recovered her body, she didn't have it, so we don't know where it is. Like, maybe it fell down the, the crack or whatever was basically the yeah. gist of it. And uh, even the first time I read it, actually, this is, like, kind of random, but um, we had just seen that uh, movie, the Clara movie, with the girl from Pretty Little Liars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the story kind of, like, reminded me of it. And I feel like she had something like that in it. So even the first time I read it, I kind of took note of that. Oh, that is funny. Hmm. I don't know if you remember that movie very well. It wasn't like particularly memorable, but we had just seen it. And I was like, oh, this is like kind of a similar story in a way. Yeah. What, what year did that come out, that movie? Uh, a few years ago. Because, hmm. yeah, now that I think about it. I mean, I guess theoretic theoretically it could have been like softly inspired, I guess. Uh, just because it had the same name. Yeah, and some other familiar elements that I guess we'll discuss once we get to the, uh, the later story. Yeah. That ties back into it, but... But yeah, I'd say, like, the, the, the main themes of this story were, were a little bit of horror and, of course, like, establishing the, the Arctic Plague, which is a, obviously the, like, main thing throughout the whole book that kind of ties everything together. But it's also uh, just a kind of sad story about a father trying to understand uh his daughter after she's died and finally getting that understanding but it's kind of too late yeah and then we get all that stuff with the the group kind of being isolated from each other mm -hmm. because of the virus and that of course becomes a big element of the book as well mm -hmm. i think almost every story kind of focuses on that isolation actually well yeah of course yeah <laughs> yeah and i think every story focuses to a degree on uh just the the desire to connect in some way Mm -hmm. Whether that's with your family, with friends, with just the world as a whole. Yeah, and did you want to move on to the, the next story, which definitely focuses on that? The, the City of Laughter? Yeah, we can move on to the next story. Yeah, this was, out of all of them, this is the one that just still stands out the most in my mind. Maybe my favorite out of all the ones I read. Um, so this one takes place, I, I guess, a few months. Maybe even longer than a few months. I don't know if you had the dates written down, but quite a while into the pandemic oh wait um hold on some of this has a little bit more detail than you probably want 
Um, sure. But basically, I uh, I have like a timeline made up, so I can send it to you. So then you can see, um, it's like a chronological timeline, so it's not in order of the stories, but um, hmm. it says like the years that things happened. If it either I guessed or the story specifically said it. Oh uh, yeah, actually maybe I'll see what how much how further away it takes. Yeah, because um, I'll actually say um, when I made this timeline. Uh, I found it very surprising because when you read the story, I feel like it feels like each story is like years and years apart from each other. But when I made the timeline, it made me realize that most of the stories were very close to each other. It was just that everything was moving very fast. Yeah. And some of that did become confusing, but more further into the book. Like maybe the last like five stories is when I, I started to get a little bit mixed up. But Yeah, the timeline will help. So I guess this one only takes place two years into the virus. And... Um... I guess at this point it's still an early strain and it's mainly affecting kids. It's a little bit harder for adults to get infected at this point. And so as a way to kind of combat all these these dying children everywhere, and I guess a way to easily dispose their bodies, um, was it just a gov governor or something like that? Someone who was making some controversial choices creates this, this theme park, the City of Laughter. Mm -hmm. It's a place for the sick kids to come and kind of live out their last little while and maybe have some maybe do some experimental kind of treatments or maybe just come right to die. And the story focuses on this character, Skip, who is a failed comedian who takes a job as a costume entertainer at the park. And yeah, this one was super depressing right off the bat, but super cool. And he's another person who doesn't really have people to connect to. He's disconnected from his own family and kind of creates a little surrogate family with this, this woman and her son at the park. Dory and uh I was it Fitch yeah, quickly yeah yeah and I just thought this one painted a really kind of somber tone for the what the world the state of the world's in and this great little park was kind of uh disturbing but also kind of sweet solution to the the problem and yeah I just I really appreciate how how all this one played out mm -hmm. um one thing that I think is interesting to note is that this um this uh theme park or euthanasia park I think they call them is mm -hmm. um it's built in an old prison i just think that's interesting oh yeah i think you know like there's i'm not that great at symbolism but you know it feels like there's a reason for that choice you know mm -hmm. um so just something to to think about i guess i don't have much to say about it but i thought it was worth noting um yeah there's even that one moment with the uh kind of religious family Mm -hmm. Who decides like, oh, we don't want, we want to have longer with our kid. We don't want to kill them. And then there's like guards with machine guns patrolling the park, and they're like, nobody leaves once they come in. So that was kind of a little disturbing yeah. note as well. <laughs> I was like, oh no. Yeah, because basically, um, the agreement when they made the park with the government and the CDC said that uh, if they wanted to stay open, they had to have a rule that no one who enters the park with the virus is allowed to leave the park. So, it, like, if they go in, they they don't get to leave, basically. Yeah, I guess this is still early on enough that they're still trying to contain the virus. Or I think later in the book, they just give up at a certain point. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk, like, they're not, they know uh, at this point that the plague or the virus, it's kind of interchangeably called both, um, is transmitted through water. And I believe they know at this point mm. that it's transmitted through sexual contact, but there's still a lot of debate on whether or not it's airborne at this point, so... Uh, there's a lot of worry there because they don't know if it can be spread easily through the air. 
Yeah, and I guess we could talk a little bit about the virus, because we didn't mention it in the first story. But it's a pretty pretty curious virus, and it, it seems to change a little bit as the story goes on, or the book goes on, I should say. Mm-hmm. Like, at this point in the story, um, the symptoms are, well, basically, uh, the virus mutates children's organs. So, like, it, it basically morphs uh, one organ into another organ, like a... Like a lung will turn into a heart or a brain. A brain will turn into a spleen. So um, depending on the organ, like they're able to prolong the, the kids' lives by giving them organ transplants. But it depends. Like, for example, like if you're, if it happens to your brain, like they can't do a brain transplant. This is only happening in uh, 2032. So it's very new future, near future. It's not like they have like amazing new technology that we don't have now. Yeah, and I think early on, maybe even in this story, they start kind of setting the the seeds that there's like conspiracy theorists that think it's like an alien virus at some point there was some sort of ufo but i can't remember which story that was in because there's such a tiny little note it's quite quite down the line but i don't know i don't i don't really notice many people talking about that to be honest but maybe it's just something i wasn't looking for yeah i was always looking for an explanation so anytime they made any hints i kind of latched onto that more Mm -hmm. but yeah i really like this one and i like seeing the little family kind of coming together like him, uh, Skip, and all the other workers in the park, they're all kind of there in like their own little isolated pods of misery. Like they don't really come together or be friends or anything like that because they all have a pretty shitty job. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to see him and Dory kind of bond and and then Fitch, um, him and Skip kind of bond over comics. He brings them a new comic every day. and Yeah, and he becomes kind of like a father figure to them, to him. Yeah. And then once things get too too far for, for Fitch, because his, his father's been kind of helping him stay along by, I guess he was rich and was able to supply him with some, some organs, stuff like that. But eventually it becomes just, just too much, and they decide, okay, he's gonna, we're gonna take him through the park and just end his life there. And I thought it was a cool change to have Skip um, kind of go with him as a father rather than the entertainer, what he usually does for the kids. Mm-hmm. So I really like that one. Yeah. It was definitely very sad when, like, uh, Skip put him on the roller coaster because they go on the roller coaster and the roller coaster is, like, basically what, like, kills the kid, but in, like, a somehow humane way. (laughs) It doesn't sound like a very good way to go for me, someone who doesn't like roller coasters. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting because in the way they tell the story, like, they don't, like, 100% say whether or not Fitch understood that he was going to die. Hmm. Or whether he, like, genuinely just thought that he was going for a date in an amusement park. Or if he kind of just knew but wasn't acknowledging it. Like, they didn't really say. So it's kind of, like, open to your interpretation. Yeah, and it's cool because, I mean, Fitch seemed like a pretty smart kid. Um, I I guess none of the kids really know why they're at that, that place. But he knew that they were holding off letting him go to the park. I guess maybe just mm-hmm. using the, the excuse he was too sick. But mm-hmm. I'm assuming you'd start to wonder, like, why... Why aren't they letting me go? I found it interesting um, because the the drug trial thing and the park thing were like two separate things. They're just on the same property, which is important to note. So like, for example, Mm -hmm. the the kids that go for the drug trial, like they don't fall under the same thing as like they're not allowed to leave if they go in. It's it's a separate thing. Um, But while he was there, like every day he would like beg to go to the park and I agree, he seemed like a smart kid, so it just made me wonder, like, is he, like, does he know that he'll die at the end? Like, is he, like, basically begging to die, or does he just not fully realize that part? Yeah, it could have even just been that life had become so kind of monotonous for him 
he was just ready to uh exactly ready for a change. yeah and i mean i can't imagine because at this point the plague had been going on for two years and we know uh from our own experience with covid uh that uh you know you don't take it seriously right away so 20 2030 is when like the first story takes place when the plague first breaks out so it's not like everybody worldwide has it right away uh so we can assume that this is like a pretty new thing for people Mm -hmm. uh so it's just interesting to see you know to imagine obviously like you you believe you're doing the best thing for the kid and in the story you you can see like you know the kids aren't going to survive it, it it's the humane thing to do it's the same sounds sounds wrong to say but it's the same kind of idea as putting down an animal um but it's interesting to think of people especially parents but not only parents but like the government and society getting to a point where that becomes an acceptable thing to do so quickly Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, a virus like that, it'd be like completely inexplainable mm-hmm. and pretty miserable deaths. So, yeah, more drastic choices maybe be quicker to go to than something like COVID, where, I mean, especially now, like the the current strains don't has don't have as high a death rate as something like that would be. So, yeah, of course, of course, it's not the same thing. But uh, yeah, just thinking about just how quickly, like, because um, I would guess, you know. Um, actually, I think, I believe it says in the story that 2031 is when the virus first came to America. So it's been maybe a year since this has been happening at all. Mm. So that's just a fast way for things to change. But I mean, I mean, we've seen that ourselves on a smaller scale with COVID as well. Um, just things do change quickly when they have to. Oh, but the only other, uh, only other note I had for this one is, and I wrote this one in retrospect, but a lot of the stories, for me, kind of felt like they had maybe a little bit of abrupt endings, where they mm-hmm. kind of, I feel like there was more room to kind of flesh out the story a little bit. This one, I thought, ended on a perfect note, with just Skip, you know, being the one to, because of course they can't go on the, the roller coaster with, with Fitch. Yeah. The mom stands aside, and he's like, oh, I can't go with you, I gotta I gotta operate the roller coaster today. And so, yeah, he, he pressed the button, just wondering about how much he and the other kids knew. I thought that was a really great way to end that story. Yeah. It really packed the punch, so. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, One question that uh, I had while I was reading it is, uh, you know, we can assume that Cliff and the other people at the research outpost died from from the plague. Uh, Yet in this story, it seems to uh, pretty much only affect children, and they also said, like, the like kind of like the elderly or maybe immunocompromised but basically only children uh Mm. so it makes you wonder like why that would be uh assuming that the people uh they didn't explicitly say it but it's implied later on that they did die at the outpost yeah maybe the the switch to having to live in water maybe mutated the virus a little bit but then again the virus was living in ice which is water well, I, th- I thought it was more living in that the the girl Anna herself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And in that in that case, um, makes you wonder like, was it airborne at that point? Because how did they get yeah. it? Yeah, I think maybe it was airborne because they said it was the winds that that brought it over. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But it also could have been the water. Like it, it was in yeah. you know global warming, melting icebergs. You know, 
Yeah, I think that's why anytime they would make any sort of reference to the origins and things like that, I would I would perk up because I was so curious about how the virus worked. Mm-hmm. Especially in these early stories, especially this next one, mm-hmm. uh, Through the Garden of Memory. I started to get very confused as to uh, <laughs> what was going on with that stuff. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go move on to that one next? Yeah, and I hope that you wrote more notes for this one because this is one where I really skimped down on the notes. I think I just forgot to, to fill them out. <laughs> Um, and also I was just so confused by it, so I was hoping that later on they would fill in more details and then I would come back mm-hmm. and, and update my summary, so. Well, why don't you try and, uh, give a little summary and then I'll, I'll, I'll fill in some more details. Yeah, so this one, um, is centered on, I think like a 14-year-old boy, I can't remember his name, I didn't write that down. We see a little bit of his early getting infected by the virus and, like, some of the, the worry with his family. And then suddenly he wakes up in a black void. And he's surrounded by tons of other people in this void, although they don't realize they're there at first because they can't see anything. And they slowly meet each other, and they're all kind of these disorganized, just massive people, and he kind of brings them together a little bit. And then, now what was it? Did they see a light above them? And so they decide to work together to try to reach it and make this like big human pyramid. And I can't remember when they... See, I'm getting some of these details all mixed up. Well, I mean, the story starts with him waking up in a hospital plague ward under quarantine um, and his parents telling him that he contracted the virus from uh, babysitting. Mm. And uh, before he goes into the coma, they comment that um, his skin is is turning translucent and like glowing oh that's right so mm. i think that's that's interesting uh that's an important part to see like how the virus is progressing because uh of course that reminds you of annie the girl uh in what's that place called <laughs> oh siberia was it yeah thank you i always want to say scandinavia for some reason but yeah that reminds you of of, of annie in si- siberia who they said was like part octopus slash starfish slash jellyfish whatever so you know kind of makes you think like oh like obviously it has something to do with her right um and he said that like his skin turned see-through and he felt like stars were floating through his vein that's what i wrote down um oh yeah Mm. yeah but so he falls into what seems to be like a kind of coma uh we learn later that it is a coma but i guess we don't know that for sure when we're reading this story yeah, and just just for clarity, it was induced comas, right? No. Oh, okay. No, it was it was a coma caused by the virus. Oh, okay, sure. So the the coma the coma is a symptom of the virus. Hmm. And yeah, they end up in this like kind of a void. I don't know, like kind of like the idea of an afterlife, but obviously not an afterlife because they're alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like just like this dark void, and um, like at first it's just like completely black but they can, like, talk and they can hear people. And the other people in the void are people that are also in comas. They're all just kind of there in, obviously, spirit, not literally. And they kind of, like, reach out for each other and find each other. And, yeah, they start to um, kind of share things with each other, like, connect with each other in some ways, because uh, they don't know how much time is passing, like... For all we know, this story could be taking place over five years or five minutes. Like, we have no idea, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they, they they start connecting and, like, sharing, like, personal things about their lives and trying to talk to each other. And 
I don't think that they see a light above them or anything. They're just trying to, um... Find a way out? Trying to find a way out. Obviously, they don't want to just stay there. They're like, can we leave this place? So they get this idea to form a kind of human pyramid and climb out. And, uh, June, is that how you pronounce his name or how you would pronounce it? I think so, yeah. Uh, it kind of, like, orchestrates the whole thing, organizing it, you know, like, finding out, because they can't see each other, like who's the strongest, who's the lightest, who can go to the top, and they make a human pyramid and they climb up, but then he ends up falling down. And, you know, it just doesn't work out. Um, (laughs) And, um, but then they start walking through more and, like, they get, like, these, like, light orbs around them. And Mm. the orbs um, show, like, different memories of people's... at first, what I thought were different memories of people's lives, but then uh, as as they went through it more, you see that it's not necessarily just different memories of the people that are theirs' lives, but it seems like just, like, memories in general or snippets of time of everything that's happened, not just of people that are there, but just in little visions into things that have happened ever on Earth, on other worlds, just everywhere, it seems like. Yeah, I was confused about that. They're all kind of walking through. They're finding their own memories. They're sharing each other's memories. They're seeing random things. And uh, June actually um, finds uh, Skip in there. Mm-hmm. So we know at this point that Skip is in a coma. And uh, Skip is uh, watching the memory of himself putting Fitch on the roller coaster. Which is sad. And he, he, he tells June that... Uh, he'd hope that Fitch would be there with them. So I guess maybe he thought that he was dead. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I wondered, too. I was like, is this an afterlife? And, like, why aren't the kids there? Maybe the kids don't go to this. I was Mm -hmm. definitely getting very confused by this one. Yeah, so um, uh, some of the things that they see in the orbs are, like, they see a silver pod crashing into the ocean. They see, um, like, different planets. And they see um, a woman in a cave crying over the body of a, of a girl. So that obviously is uh, Annie's mom. So they're seeing that, which is why I say, like, it seems like they're just seeing, like, snippets of just history in general, not necessarily just the people that are there. Mm. And uh, in that memory, uh, they also see after the woman's done crying over the dead girl, she sheds her clothes and turns to light, it says. Oh, okay. I didn't remember that part. That's interesting. Hmm. And then uh, back in outside of the coma, so this is how we know that they're in a coma, is that um, we June actually sees the doctor telling his parents that he's in a coma and that his brain is currently incredibly active, but that he's probably going to die soon, basically. <laughs> they learn that someone in the void is pregnant and just all kinds of little interesting things. And then at this point... Um, they hear baby crying and uh they you know work together and they find this this baby and obviously everyone is like really upset that there's a baby there because they're like what's going to happen to the baby being here they don't know that i mean i guess in a way from that memory with his parents he knows that he's in a coma but they don't really know what's going on they're just worried about the baby and when june was at the top of the pyramid before before he fell down he could feel kind of like something pulling up like his hair was going up like static 
and he he figures like there's a lot more people in the void now like maybe if they all come together and do it again they can lift the baby up and throw it out and like they don't know if that <laughs> like they don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing like maybe that's killing the baby who knows but they're like well they want to do something right because everybody feels powerless mm-hmm. so they end up making the pyramid again and going up and throwing the baby up and it does it goes up somewhere and it's gone and that's it they don't know what happens to it and that's kind of just the end of the story yeah and i'm still i still don't really necessarily feel like this was fully explained by the end of the book um i think it i think it was but i have some more points at different points that i want to talk about but i'd like to hear what you have to say well i was going to say that i'm assuming the end bit the the kind of throwing the baby out was maybe them like using their combined abilities to help the pregnant woman give birth while still in the coma Mm, no i don't think so but otherwise i've got yeah i was completely baffled by this one i i think this this is never fully explained so like this is like a i guess you would say like a fan theory but um i i believe that i figured it out but i want to wait until we get to that part to 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 bring it up sure is there anything else you want to say about that story like um i liked the kind of visual that that it gave us like i thought a lot of the kind of floating like pockets of time was a cool image Mm -hmm. but i'm the first time i was like oh i don't feel like this this feels like it doesn't have connection to the previous two and as i kept going throughout the book i kept being like oh i don't i mean maybe just the theme of people feeling disconnected from each other and having to Mm -hmm. find some way to relate but otherwise it felt so different from everything else it kind of and it 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 shows us the coma. Yeah, yeah. Which are brought up again in the future. And it also gives us an update on uh, Skip. Yeah. And maybe another kind of aspect of the virus that we wouldn't realize it as this almost like maybe psychic connection that it creates mm-hmm. between all the victims. But again, I, I it just felt so different from everything else that it kind of still looks like an oddity in the book. Yeah, that's fair. But definitely another oddity is Pig Sun. If you want to move on to that one, or unless you had anything else to say about the other one, too. I'm ready. Go ahead. Yeah, Pig Sun was a pretty cool one. In another one, especially following that previous one, where I was like, okay, this book is now moving in directions that I would not have expected. Except I really liked this one. So it focuses on... Yeah, this was one of my favorite ones, I think. Yeah, so this one focuses on Fitch's dad. Mm-hmm. And we kind of see more what he was doing during that time. Because during the City of Laughter... And his name's David, by the way. David. Yeah, during the City of Laughter, like, we, we got little snippets of Dorian, his relationship kind of crumbling, and maybe some of Fitch being like, oh, like, I wish my dad, like, I haven't seen him in a long time, like, where is he? And Fitch didn't really say it, but maybe there was, like, an underlying thing of, like... You kind of got the feeling, yeah. Yeah. Like, does my dad even, like, does he still care about me? Does he want to see me like this? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was cool getting that, his side of the story filled out. And that's the thing that we'll see again throughout the book, just those kind of kind of reflecting stories like that, which I like. Seeing two sides, yeah. Yeah. Um, but this one, I guess, they're using stem cells to genetically alter these pigs to, I guess, give more, maybe stronger or more human-accurate organs, something like that. I wasn't entirely clear. They're growing human organs inside the pigs. Like, they're 100% human organs inside the pigs. Mm. Sure. Yeah, and it's somehow just some sort of weird oddity. One of the pigs 
his brain starts to morph. Is it just mimic a human, or is it because that I was a little bit confused by because it seems to be changing as the story goes on that the brain either it's just uh, basically I mean they don't fully understand it and I don't think they ever fully understand it but oh, okay. basically what happens is um, because of the different experiments and treatments they're doing to the pig um, this pig somehow gains the ability to speak telepathically telepathically that's right yeah because he doesn't have the proper speech uh, vocal cords yeah yeah, vocal cords, but yeah, and so he has a weird name, uh, Snor- Snortorius P.I.G., I think they called him. Yeah. And he's this kind of fun little pig who, yeah, he's discovering what life is around him and what his place is in the world. And another little surrogate family kind of grows between David the pig and his assistant. But it's another kind of somber little story of this kind of kid having to kind of come to terms with the fact that he's also dying because his brain is growing so big that it's eventually going to kill him. And just him kind of learning about what the pig's role is in this world, not just the ones in the lab with him, but just pigs in general. And so all that stuff was just kind of sad, but also cute. I love that he liked watching the hippo videos on the Nature Channel. I thought that was super cute. Mm -hmm. And rocket ships. Yeah, I I really enjoyed all that stuff. But but another sad one. Mm -hmm. Definitely this book has a lot of... uh, can be a little bit of a, a mood killer i feel like it's like melancholy you know melancholy yeah like it's sad but in kind of like a hopeful way like these sad things happen but like good things come out of it or like good lessons and that kind of thing like you know like it's not just like dark dark mm-hmm. yeah yeah i guess that's fair but i was just gonna flip to the end of this one because i remember that this one also ended in a really kind of fitting way like uh the city of laughter Oh, but did you have anything else to talk about while, I, while I'm flipping through it here with that one? Yeah, um, so the they find out the pig has the ability to speak telepathically, and obviously, like, they're, like, amazed by it, and they help it, you know, like, they hire a speech therapist, and they, they teach it, you know, they're teaching it to read, they're teaching it about the world around it, and obviously trying to keep it a secret uh, so that the pig's not taken away from them or, you know, mistreated. Uh, but obviously it is eventually found out. And, uh, obviously, like, David sees Snortorius as, like, a kind of stand-in for his son. And Mm. his bond with with the pig allows him to kind of get closure with his son dying and not having been with his son, you know? He wasn't there for Fitch when Fitch was sick. He kind of just, like, Mm -hmm. sent him away and he, he funded his treatment, but he wasn't there for him emotionally. And um, his relationship with with Snortorius is kind of um, him coming to terms with that. And he basically becomes like a surrogate son for him. Like, they read together and they sleep next to each other. And he really, like, in a way takes the place of him. And, And David definitely, like, they show him, like, thinking about his son and wishes, wishing that he could have, gone with Fitch and Dory and even imagines what it would have been like to to take Snortorius to the euthanasia park and put him on the roller coaster. Yeah, and I, I thought it was a good moment when Snortorius gets curious about Fitch, like, oh, like, what happened to him? And and once he kind of realizes about the kids dying and what, what the roles of the pigs are, at the end he kind of is like, okay, well, I know that I'm going to die, and so I want to make sure that I live my role for these kids and I want to give my my heart to someone Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really sweet little end too 
for him. Yeah, they they basically said uh, that he knew he was going to die no matter what, whether, you know, he, he was food or he donated his organs or he just died from his brain growing too big or they dissected his brain because they wanted to figure out he, he made uh, like mm-hmm. a very human decision that he wanted to die in a meaningful way and to help kids like David's son. And there was that part where um, they took him home for a night and they have like a Christmas party and a birthday party and everything all together. Sad. Yeah, it's a very sweet little little end for him. And they also kind of uh, show at the end that uh, Snortorius knew like a lot, a lot more than he put on and that he most likely was actually able to read people's minds as well. And so he knew a lot more than what they were sharing with him because they were kind of treating him as like a child and not giving him all the details, trying to protect him. But mm-hmm. it kind of showed at the end that uh, he knew that they were doing that, but they were, he was just kind of letting them. Yep. Yeah, so it was, that's one of the more well-rounded stories, I think, in this one. I really think that that one in The City of Laughter definitely stand up as some of the best. Mm-hmm. And I like that the very end of the story was uh, David finishing the story that he was originally reading to Fitch. Yeah, I thought that was really sweet, too. Yep. Is it uh, The Return of the King, I think? Well, I just saw Lord of the Rings, you know. I never read Lord of the yeah, Rings. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's fair. Do you have anything else to say about that one? Uh, no, I think I'm ready to move on to the, the next one. Oh, and I just wanted to, because I like to kind of keep a, keep a look at the timeline. And I was going to say um, the, uh, the story when they're in the coma. I think that was around 2033. And uh, I believe this story, the, the pig son, took place in 2034. So that would have been two years after Fitch died. And um, I should mention also that David mentions in the story because he calls Dory and he mentions in the story that uh, Skip is still in a coma. Mm. Just, you know. Yeah, I thought that was sad. Poor Skip. Something important <laughs> to just know for the timeline. Because mm-hmm. I like that character. I, was, I thought it was too bad for Dory, but, but I guess she's got other places to go. And we also know that Dory is still working at the uh, the City of Laughter um, in the like crematorium. Hmm. Yeah, and Dory shows up in the next story too, right? In uh, LG Hotel. I don't think so. Yeah, LG Hotel is one of the another one where I didn't write as many notes for uh, for a summary. I wrote my opinions, but okay. Well, go ahead and uh, tell me what you think about it. Yeah, so this one that takes place in an LG Hotel, which is another kind of end of life service place, right? It's kind of like a LG Hotel. Yeah. No, I think you misunderstood. Oh, okay, yeah, again, see. <laughs> I think you misunderstood the story if you think that. Uh, the the LG Hotel is basically a place people can come and hang out with their loved one's corpse to help them in the grieving process. Oh, the corpse, that's right. Yeah, so yes. they, like, sterilize and <laughs> embalm the corpses so that they can be preserved and then give the families time to say goodbye while they're waiting because the, the crematoriums are backlogged. So, mm. the, like, they're, the corpses are just piling up while they're waiting to be cremated. So this is kind of an answer to that. You know, they embalm, preserve the, the corpses, and then put them in a room and their family can kind of, like, hang out with them. That's right. Yeah, I couldn't remember the exact details of the LG Hotel because we spend so much time kind of focused on just Dennis's experience. He's our main character for this one. And this was the one that I found the most difficult to uh, sympathize with of the characters. Like, Dennis is kind of a, kind of a willing asshole. 
Like, he, he knows that he's a dick, he knows that he's not really doing right by the people around him, but he just, he can't, can't turn things around, really, and... I think he's just kind of, like, paralyzed by indecision. Yeah, it, it seems like laziness at times, but laziness and indecision can be pretty, pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So he'll just be like, oh, you know, oh, I, I'm gonna call him tomorrow, absolutely gonna call him tomorrow, because his brother, um, was it Brian? He, uh, he, he and the mom come to him and he's like, oh, you know, my mom's dying and we really need like a nurse, a stay-at-home nurse with them. And we want you to come and live with her and, you know, you've been kind of a fuck up. This is your chance to make things right. Mm-hmm. And the mom's dying of cancer, which is in, just interesting to note because it's, it's not plague related. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yeah, Dennis is dating. I thought he was dating Dory, but maybe I wrote down the wrong name. My... No, he's. He's dating Val. Val, that's right. Who works with him at the LG Hotel. That's right. I, I don't know why I got that mixed up in my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> and she keeps trying to push him. But they're not actually dating. The, they do date later on, but I don't think they date in this story. They're just uh, they're just friends. Yeah, I guess he, he kind of has the same thing with her, too. Where it's kind of like, yeah, you, we could be more if you put the right effort in and kind of did the right things. But he just... He just can't do things right. And she kind of has disdain for him in a way because she sees the way that he doesn't want to be there for his family. And she's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> his brother is like calling him like constantly and texting him and he's just refusing to pick up. He's like, oh, I'll just call him back tomorrow. He knows his mom's dying. <laughs> yeah. His, and his brother Brian is it's like um, like a wealthier, like he's like a scientist or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the story goes on with him. And he, he's miserable living his life at the Delgie Hotel. I mean, he seems to maybe delude himself into thinking that everything's all right. And he's not. But he, he's like, oh, it's all it's all fine. Like, I don't mind my job here. And I've got my, my friend Val that I may be sort of dating, but not really. And <laughs> so, again, he, he's difficult to sympathize because you can see all the problems that he could very easily fix if he would just make the effort to fix them. Mm-hmm. And then finally, one day... Um, after his brother calls and calls all the time, he's like, okay, I guess I'll pick up this one time. And then it's too late. Yeah, his mom's dead. Mom's dead, yeah. And so, and that's kind of the thing that finally maybe kicks his butt into gear. And he mm-hmm. kind of makes things right with his brother a little bit before the uh, yeah. before the story ends. But <laughs> So he pays, he pays to bring his mom to the LG hotel to one of the like fancier suites, but it costs him two years of his salary. So he basically has to work there for two years for free to pay it off. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, Brian comes there, his brother, and you know, he sits down with him and he says, you know, like I have a lot of money, but I didn't really do much for her either. You know, mm. like you shouldn't feel too bad. I'm not that much better than you. And, you know, they kind of think about, you know, this is two years of his salary that they're spending on basically her getting to stay in a fancy hotel room as a corpse. It's like, what if they'd <laughs> paid for her to go on a expensive vacation, see the world, to do something together while she was alive with that money. But instead they just spend it all so that her corpse can, can lie in a nice room. Right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see how the world has kind of changed in that way. The funerary industry, they call it, has kind of, like, taken over at this point. And uh, cryptocurrencies are, like, the main form of money. And, uh, the yeah, it's, uh, in 2034, 
uh, which is two years before this, uh, the funerary industry started taking over the banking system. So like people are paying for groceries with mortuary cryptocurrencies. And uh, yeah, it says at this point that LG hotels have been open for three years. So like this, the way that people see death has completely changed at this point. And this is only six years after the plague was first discovered, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and speaking of people kind of changing their perspectives on death, um, uh, speak, fetch, say I love you also gets into that quite a bit. Mm-hmm, it does, I want yeah. to uh, move into that one. Yep. Yeah, so this one is centered on a father and his son trying to cope in the wake of uh, his wife slash his mom's death. <laughs> I guess his wife, since it's the lead's the dad. And they run kind of a repair shop for these is it specifically just for the robo dogs yeah because yeah it's not a very uh long uh lasting career but <laughs> yeah these robo dogs they i guess they were put out maybe a few years before the pandemic kind of ruined everything and there were these yeah i mean they exist now like in yeah yeah this, this time right so like assume they existed from you know 2020 to um basically they say that they stopped making them shortly after the plague started because they started making other things like like robo companions and stuff yeah like sex kind of companions yeah. kind of things i got the the impression but yeah so yeah these little robot dogs they they can record little snippets of what the person says and you can kind of i guess they have little ais that you can kind of program program them in a way to interact or react to certain things and as these people kind of spend their last days some of them had these robo dogs and they would record little little messages for their family and stuff like that so it becomes very important for these people as the dogs kind of their software starts to run down have them repaired because this it's almost like having a piece of that dead relative still alive with them and Mm -hmm. we learn that our lead and his son have that same kind of connection where the the mom died and in a way, they, especially the son, kind of sees it as like a spiritual connection to her. Mm-hmm. And this is another really strong one for the book, I think. I think uh, the dad's voice just comes across very sympathetic, especially in comparison to the last story, where I was kind of like, oh, this Dennis, like this fucking guy, like you can just you can turn things around so easily. And so coming back to this one, I was like, OK, here's someone I can really kind of dig into. So that it was good that they put this one right after the other one. Mm-hmm. Kind of pull me back into the book. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I would say that I was more interested in the previous one than I was this one. So it's interesting to see the two perspectives. Oh, okay. That's fair. Not that I think that there's anything wrong with this story, just that uh, I felt myself more drawn to the, the story in the previous one. Mm. But yeah, I, I I don't have as many notes about this one as well, but basically the dad... Uh, repairs these robo dogs and uh there's not a lot of parts left for them now so people are like coming to him and begging him to replace them because obviously they're like the the last memories they have of their loved ones who died for the most part and not just that but you know like for children like like their friends because yep half their friends are probably dead from the plague now <laughs> and uh this takes place in japan by the way some of the stories mm-hmm. take place in America, and some of them take place in Japan, so it's just interesting to note. And there's a lot of talk in this story about rising sea levels in Japan as well. Mm. 
but yeah, they they talk about how the the wife before she died, uh, I believe her name was Ayano, but I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and their dog's name was Hollywood, and she would confide in the dog and kind of talk to it about her feelings about dying and all that kind of stuff when she didn't want to burden her family. So they would kind of get little bits of that after she died and like songs that she sang and that kind of stuff. But because the dog, uh, the dog was old, like old technology and not a lot of parts to repair it, it would glitch out a lot and you couldn't like, you don't really get to like choose when it does stuff. Basically you just kind of hope that it will give you like a little piece of, you know, your wife, your mom and this man, I don't know if we ever learned his name the dad in the story but uh i don't think so he he all the people in the neighborhood like donate their old robo dogs to him once they don't work anymore so that he can like scavenge for parts uh but he promises them that uh once he doesn't need them anymore he he'll do like a goodbye ceremony for them and he actually has like a like i don't know if it's a priest but like some kind of like religious leader come and like perform like a religious ceremony for the dogs to kind of like say goodbye to them and then he'll go and take them back to the people which is sad yeah i thought that was very sweet yeah and um an interesting part um at the end of the story um so a lot of the stories about you know the son kind of uh resenting the dad in a way basically just because he's he's mourning the loss of his mom and you know he's mad that his mom died instead of his dad and he doesn't have his mom uh so he's just struggling with that and they kind of uh they kind of bond over their shared loss in a way by the end of the story but it's still kind of tenuous um but the story ends with them going to uh visit the mom like after she's died uh and what you assume is going to be a graveyard but then when they go um it's more like like a room where like the urn is just deposited while they're there and they just go and they they Mm. they sit with the urn and then after after they go and put it back you know in a storage room or whatever which makes sense but it's kind of sad to think about it (laughs) the (laughs) even while they're there there's like ads projected on the wall yeah (laughs) it's just very uh very capitalizing on death in a way that uh, even today we don't really see, even though it's kind of surprising that we don't already have this stuff. Yeah, and we definitely see that advance as the uh, story kind of returns to this area mm-hmm. later on. But Oh, but there was, um, I also had my notes that I thought the robo-dogs, some of the, the bits with them kind of made me think of maybe families who have relatives that are still alive but have, like, severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. And, like, every now and again, pockets of them appear, but maybe like not when you expect or sometimes it comes back in like ways that are you know kind of traumatic like there was that bit yeah. when the, at their little memorial when the dog just started like singing and they were all embarrassed trying to you know get it back under control mm-hmm. so i thought maybe some of that was was bleeding into there which i thought was kind of yeah i didn't think about it that way but i can definitely understand that and uh i believe that uh this story i only saw this briefly um but i believe that this story was inspired by um like elderly people in japan uh have like these robo dogs and kind of have them as companions like currently in in real life and so that's kind of what this was inspired by oh that's interesting Hmm. yeah i don't think i really know anything about little robot dogs i remember the ones that we used to have 
back in the. Uh... I've seen them online. They're they're expensive. There's like really nice expensive ones. Oh, they're not like the cheap little plastic ones that they used to have in like the early two thousands. <laughs> no, they're like thousands of dollars, oh, okay. and they're like they're smart. Like you can teach them a lot. They're they're basically like a real dog. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'll show you later. <laughs> sure. Oh, but uh, the next one, uh, number seven, Story of Your Decay. Songs of Your Decay. So Songs of Your Decay, sorry. I was looking at the word story when I said that. <laughs> yeah, this is another one where I didn't have as much of a connection to it. So maybe, I don't know if you had more, more to say with it. Yeah, well, um, yeah, so it's, it's about a woman named Aubrey. Uh, and she's a doctor who works at a forensic body farm researching the way the plague transforms the human body, uh, comparing different strains to each other and that kind of thing. But in addition to that, uh, like they also work on, you know, bodies, uh, like regular forensic science, you know, like seeing, mm. you know, crime victims and seeing how figuring out a cause of death and that kind of thing. Like they do both. So, yeah, uh, layered uh, donated himself while he was still living so that she can study his cells before and after drug trials. And she forms a friendship with him. And, uh, like, on a personal level, she obviously wants him to live, but on a professional level, like, knows that him dying <laughs> would be, like, what's best for, like, the science and the research, which is kind of, like, mm -hmm. a hard thing, right? And yeah, she's married. Uh, her husband's name is Tatsu, and he's an EMT. Uh, so they got married a year before the pandemic started. And so this is this story takes place in 2037. And uh, just some notes on how the plague has progressed at this point is that there have been cases of organs turning into globs of lights. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so her and her husband, Tatsu, have been married seven years. Um, and they got married a year before the pandemic started. So they've been married eight years then. And their difference in work, like he works with living people, she works with dead bodies. It's caused like a rift in their relationship and it causes a lot of tension. And, but they try to work on it. Try to, you know, still come together. But there's a lot of tension because Aubrey has this relationship with Laird. And she spends a lot of time with him, and they bond over um, their love of music, and they listen to music together. Um, so Laird basically uh, came to her uh, after, I believe, his mom died of the plague, and before he got sick at all, because he was just interested in the funding. And uh, his sister, Orly, donated a wing of the hospital that Aubrey works at. So after he got sick uh, is when he agreed to donate his body and he already knew Aubrey at that point uh and Orly his his sister feels a little bit weird about it like the it's kind of like mm. him being taken advantage of in a way right like maybe he doesn't want to donate his body to science because he signed a, a release that gives Aubrey Aubrey's lab total custody over his body when he dies and she feels a little bit like uncomfortable about that the sister does yeah I guess a lot of the story is just kind of seeing kind of the comparing relationships that she has with her husband versus with Laird. Mm -hmm. And there's that kind of bittersweet quality to her because she knows obviously that he's has to die or is going to die. I should say not has to die, but, and yeah, I, I don't know. I just didn't have as much connection to the, the kind of the drama with it. Mm -hmm. Something about her 
connection with Laird just didn't really ring super true to me. And it wasn't even necessarily like a romance until maybe it was like kind of under the surface romance. Mm-hmm. And no, it wasn't a romance. It was a story about kind of um, like what could have been, you know? It's not that they were in love. It's that it's that they knew that if they met in different circumstances, if the if the plague didn't exist, if he wasn't sick, if she wasn't a doctor, like if if things were completely different, then maybe they could have had a good relationship. And it's just kind of like a sad feeling of like if things were completely different than they actually are, then we could have had a nice a nice life together. Yeah, and we get another one that does a very similar thing, but probably to less effect than, than this one does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought the, the cool thing with this one was the element of them having that, uh, her and her husband, getting married just before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And kind of seeing all these years later how that affected their, their lives together. I thought that was a cool element. It is, yeah. Um, some interesting little details during the story. Um, um, when... Uh, Aubrey and Laird are watching the news. They see, um, like, uh, a, a sphere-shaped object crash into the ocean. So hmm. they see that on the news, so that's just something to note. It's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, when, when Laird eventually dies, Aubrey has a hard time, like, showing her husband what he meant to her, showing him her grief. Mm-hmm. Um, like, she feels like it's a really private thing, and... You know, makes you wonder, like, if if she had been able to to share that with him, could it have could it have brought them closer and helped to heal their relationship in some ways? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, he, he was clearly. I mean, he he admits that he was like, at a certain point, like jealous of the fact that she felt like she had more connection to a dead guy than to him. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like he kept trying to reach out to try to find some some sort of way to reestablish a connection. It mm-hmm. seemed like more she was the one that didn't really want to at a certain point so yeah, so yeah I'm, I'm sure it would have would have helped yeah and the story basically ends with you know her husband is still trying to fix things you know asking her to come meet him and they'll talk and instead of going to meet him she goes and kind of stares at Laird's decomposing corpse <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I don't know you know you feel bad for her husband but it's a really hard world that they're living in at this point you know and everyone is just living Mm -hmm. in constant trauma and just trying to find some kind of happiness so it's hard to really hold it against her yeah the sad part is that she was even there in the parking lot just watching him kind Mm -hmm. of break down trying to get her to come show up to the meeting she agreed to uh (laughs) she just wasn't there she never agreed to go though i don't think she ever responded to his text that's fair yeah I i think you're right about that um and one other little tidbit is just um Laird, when he dies, like leaves her a box of stuff, and uh, there's a key uh, to a drawer in his house, and she goes and opens it, and it's just full of like different clippings of different stories about the plague, and a lot of them reference stories that we've already read about, like the pig organs and the city of laughter and that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Oh, but I guess speaking of referencing some things we've seen before, we have the eighth story, uh, Life Around the Event Horizon. Yeah, now we see kind of the other side of Dennis's uh, story by focusing on his brother, Brian. And this was another one where I, and maybe maybe you know, or, or maybe maybe you don't, but I, I feel like there was not really a full explanation about 
what happened here. There is. Is we we have a scientist who, um, I guess, accidentally created a singularity in his brain, and that's kind of where I was confused about. Like, yeah. So so Brian, uh, they actually mentioned in the uh, Algae Hotel chapter that uh, he already he was a scientist who worked with black holes. Mm. Um. So yeah, they don't explain exactly what happened, but somehow in his research, he created a kind of basically black hole inside his brain, <laughs> which uh, opens up the door to give them interstellar space travel. And, and that is that's that's kind of a setup for another story. But this one, it almost seemed like it was more about just him coming to terms with and being like, okay, well, this is kind of what my life is, and. You know, the people treat me differently. My relationship with, uh, I guess, it's, it's a new wife, right, Teresa? They just kind of come together maybe around this. Yeah, um, because his his wife died fairly recently um, along with his daughter, Petal. So it's just him, his new wife, Teresa, and his son, Peter, uh, who's going by a different name that I didn't write down just because he's, you know, being a teenager. <laughs> Yeah, and, he, and the dad's almost like he's become like sort of a little celebrity in the the science uh, circles. It's like, oh, it's the guy with the weird black hole in his head, and so mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a strange concept for a story. Um, and I was curious how they would be able to take that and put it into creating an engine, but and that's why I was curious about how exactly it happened because I was like, oh, and I'm curious how they were able to turn this into an engine, but but I was never entirely clear, but story's not really about that so so it's all good yeah um yeah so basically the son uh well i'm just gonna call him peter because that's his real name um <laughs> just really hates his dad and uh he hates Teresa. well he doesn't hate Teresa, but he he yeah he dislikes her he's like dad you're like dating my babysitter type of thing yeah and dislikes that he got married so quickly yeah, because he did. He got he got married very quickly, which Brian actually feels a little bit, you know, self conscious about as well. Yeah, and, and he he uh, he actually thinks that she's maybe even better at his job than than he is, and she kind of like corrects his math and stuff, and so he feels a little bit. Yeah, and she's working on getting getting the black hole out of his brain. Mm hmm. And uh, there's a part where um, Brian almost wishes that. Peter died instead of Petal because he felt he connected more with Petal. So, I mean, that's... And that's something we saw in, the, in, a, in a different way in the other story where, you know, the son's wishing that the mom, the mom lived and the dad died. I mean, it's something mm. that... I guess it's a human thing to feel and it's... Mm -hmm. It's not a real feeling, you know? Because you don't want anyone to die. It's just one of those things where it's like... I don't have a connection with you. I miss the person I had a connection with. Yeah, just just briefly, I was just thinking, it's a little bit of spoilers for a later story, but knowing kind of what Teresa's role is later in the story, do you think that she had any involvement with maybe creating the black hole in his mind? Or, yeah, she did. Or in his brain? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Because again, I was, I was hung up on that detail, and I feel like it was maybe distracting me through some of the other part of the, the story. But it's a pretty short story, too. This is one of the mm -hmm. the more brief ones. So, so we also we also uh, learn in the story that Teresa also has uh, the purple pendant. Oh, okay, didn't remember that detail. Hmm. Yeah, and um, in addition to that, we learned that um, someone left a vial outside a research lab that led to a cure, 
for the for the plague with a little hmm. note on it that said a little help yeah that's interesting so they don't they don't know who it came from it just got left there this is also happening in 2037 so it's interesting to note like the robo dogs the um the story with aubrey and laird and this like this is all happening basically at the same time mm-hmm. and even the elegy hotel was like bit this was like just after it oh, okay so even though it feels like a long time later it's not at least to me it feels like a long time later and we also learned in this story that uh dennis is now dating val <laughs> yeah now, like he at one point he comments and is talking about how stupid he thinks his brother is and now he just wants to live at that lg hotel for the rest of his life yeah and saying that uh he even wanted to like pay his debts but <laughs> yeah exactly that's what i was gonna say he because his brother obviously is still working out uh working off the debt he says that he's been working for a year so it's been a year since that story. Yeah, and he's just like willingly stuck in like this dead end very curious guy that dennis but um but yeah i don't think i have too much on that one it was such kind of a, a short story i didn't really have a lot of time to get mm-hmm. invested in it and then it just kind of ended i was like oh yeah the the main thing that really um uh spoke to me or made me think was just the the feeling of uh you know um struggling to connect with the people who are left behind mm. you know that's fair which is the same kind of theme as in the robo dog story uh, when you know yeah part of your family is gone and maybe the 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 people who are gone were the people who kind of felt like were the the glue holding it together in a way you know yeah it is, it is interesting to think they said that some of these were not initially attached to this big narrative they were just kind of their own little separate stories i'm sure that they were edited though yeah yeah but but just um because a lot of them feel like they are kind of going over the same themes a lot maybe in just different ways so it's clearly something this this author just like had in him mm-hmm. that he was trying to work out in all these different little stories yeah that's true that's true but um this next one another really cool one a gallery a century a cry a millennium uh this is another one that really stood out for me is because you know i'm such a big sci-fi fan that's usually what i read mm-hmm. they're sci-fi or horror so this one really tickled my uh my fancy you can go ahead and give us a summary. Yeah, so this one... Actually, let me quickly check the... Oh, it says right here. So this is um, at the end of 2037. Um, I guess they decide that this planet, even though that cure is kind of rumbling, like maybe we have a way to solve this problem, but we've also got this ship, so maybe we should try to find a way to get off this planet in case we can't wrap our hands around this virus thing. Mm-hmm. And they have this... Was it three colony ships they sent out mm-hmm. but at this at this point in the story at the beginning of the story it's just one uh and that's important because that's all that matters the the other ones that go out like go out at a, at a far different time in the future oh, okay sure yeah and this one the the main character for this one is the wife of cliff from the first story yeah mickey or miki yeah and, and she doesn't really have any sort of I guess like science career <laughs> she's on the ship more of like a legacy she's an artist yeah but but uh she's included on the ship for more of like a legacy person mm-hmm. like oh mm-hmm. your family did this important thing so we want this family to continue on into this uh like this this journey for these explorers well actually can i just say one thing because i forgot to mention it early on but 
wanted to say that uh, at the beginning of in the first story they said that she painted a picture of Clara and uh, and uh, their daughter Yumi and Clara's daughter Yumi uh, like playing in the mud and then in the LG Hotel story it's mentioned that Val owns that painting oh, oh okay I just wanted to because I didn't bring it up before yeah, and I think Val is mentioned on this as well. I think she's also going on this ship. Yeah, Val is going on this ship. Yeah, and of course Dennis says, oh, give me a... I'm going to come eventually. I'll mm-hmm. be on the next ship. Still just <laughs> that fucking guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how long it was in the journey, but eventually they wake up. Kind of a skeleton crew for the ship, and she's one of them. Um, was it just all the adults? Or was it... It's basically just only the essential. So, um, most of the most of the adults on board are essential, um, other mm. than the the lottery people, uh, because there's a lottery uh, for people yeah. to go on the ship as well. But basically, everybody who... Ev- every adult who isn't, like, one of the lottery passengers gets woken up once, once a year, once a uh, human mm. year, or Earth year, but also every time that they get to a planet. Yeah, because they don't really have a... They've got some ideas of a destination, but they don't know what it's going to be like when they get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of very scattered kind of uh, stops. But every time they wake up, this mom and Dory from uh, City of Laughter, they kind of paint murals all over the ship. Yeah, Dor- Dory was a uh, was a lottery passenger as well, but the the captain decided to wake her up to paint with Mickey specifically. Because he thought that it would be nice for the two of them to paint together and just decorate the ship for everybody. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of cool to see this story through their perspective because they don't really like when they arrive at the, I think it's the first planet they go to, or maybe not the first because I don't think they could even get on to the first planet. I think that one was kind of just a bust all the way. Yeah. Um, but whatever the planet is that they go on first, <laughs> there's like these giant bugs that like kill part of the crew and. They have to move on. So I kind of like seeing it just from the an outsider's perspective like that. Mm-hmm. But they paint everything. Like, um, every time they wake up, they paint, like, where they come from, where they've been. They paint each planet that they stop at. They paint, like, the different passengers' hometowns. Dory paints the City of Laughter. Uh, they just, like, paint, like, pretty much everything that they can think of on all of the walls that cover the whole ship. Yeah, and this is, this is also interesting because it covers a massive amount of time. I think by the time they finally arrive at their planet, it's like 6,000 years mm-hmm. since the start of the book. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And they they check out some cool little planets along the way, but I think the coolest one... Oh, I should say the first time they stopped was 50 years of travel time, it says. 50 years oh, of sure. uh, Earth travel time. That was the first time they got woken up. Yeah, but the coolest of the... Uh, kind of stops that they pass by is this rogue planet which is just like a ruin of a civilization the planet's just scattered on its own just floating in interstellar space mm-hmm. i thought that was a super cool little little image in there and i wasn't expecting that to come back and kind of tie into the story i thought that was just a cool little snippet mm-hmm. but but then it does yeah. yeah so i guess maybe we'll save some of that but no i thought this one was a cool one and i like that at the end it's been so long that they're like like, can we even necessarily relate to these people that we once were? And mm-hmm. yeah, these messages. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But that comes in at the very end of the book. That's true, too. yeah. Um, but uh, they learned that um, 
that Brian and Teresa back on Earth are working on a solar shade project to cool the planet. Um, also, an important thing to note is that Brian and Teresa chose not to go, even though it was Brian's like research that obviously made the ship possible. Mm. Um, but their son, Peter, did go. Oh, yeah. I remember them mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, another thing is that uh, the same way that Cliff uh, wrote in Claire's journal to kind of try to understand her, uh, Mickey does the same thing in the same journal, kind of writing letters to Cliff and letters to Clara, trying to... I mean, I think that she understood Clara a lot more than Cliff ever did, but mm-hmm. still just trying to uh, talk to them, process the loss and process what she's gone through since she lost them and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, yeah. Like letters to Yumi, right? Something like mm-hmm, that. That as well. And they they receive uh, communications from Earth at one point saying uh, a decades-old message informing them <laughs> that the plague has been cured and the comatose woke up and people began to rebuild their lives. And funerary corporations expanded to focus on climate projects, building seawalls around coastal cities, sponsoring the Solar Shade Project until the end of the century. So that's what... Uh, brian and Teresa were working on but yeah i thought this was another really really cool one um another standout but it kind of set me up a little bit to to kind of take a little while to adjust to the next story because this one Mm -hmm. it's such a big sci-fi story and it kind of takes place over a huge amount of time Mm -hmm. there's a good thing to introduce that the plague was kind of dealt with at this point because the next stories kind of take place post it yeah, like uh, like at that point, like when they get the the thing from from Earth, they learned that NASA built three other ships and sent them to other places. So at that point, they know that like there's other people out in space with them somewhere. Hmm. Just thought it'd be really interesting to uh, like receive decades old messages from loved ones who probably already died at that point. And yeah, cool and sad. Kind of think like. Like, oh, like, they, they did cure the plague after we left, but that doesn't mean we should have stayed. Like, maybe they still would have died of the plague if they'd stayed, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it would make you feel like, was was it useless to leave? Especially because at the point that they received those messages, they still hadn't found a permanent place to go. There's, like, a lot of stress while they're traveling through space because they didn't think it would take them that long to find somewhere that they could live. But there's kind of, like... At first, they say there's no point turning back, but then at one point, the uh, the captain even says, if we have to turn back, we will, because I guess he's even starting to feel like maybe there isn't anywhere for us to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it'd be so disappointing, just the constant disappointment. Mm-hmm. And then you find that, like, relic planet. It'd probably feel pretty uh, pretty hopeless, seeing something like that. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, was a cool, it was a cool little ending that they finally kind of find a place to settle in. Yeah, and I... Um... They talked about how they um, scattered um, their loved ones' ashes in space. Like I don't remember what they mixed it with. They mixed it with something that was like glowing, so they could like see it glowing in space. Mm. And I thought that sounded really pretty. Oh, but uh, any any last words for that one? Oh, I thought it was really um, nice because um, when they did go to that planet where the animals were attacking them, the commander said like that it was their planet and they wouldn't they they wouldn't exterminate alien life. Or make any other worlds bend to their will. Yeah, I thought that was a really good note. And that's when he said, if nothing else is out there for us, we may need to return. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I thought that was really nice. And, uh, oh, I, I highlighted it. This is um, what I wanted to uh, say about the funeral. It says, 
We mix tiny beacons affixed with LED lights into their collective remains, created an ancestral trail of light that will linger just beyond Saturn's rings, a star to look up at, to pray to, like the necklace your mother wore. That's what she was writing to, uh, to, uh, <laughs> Yumi. Yumi. Yeah, and there's lots of pretty little moments like that. Pretty little kind of visual moments is how I'm not sure else to describe it, but. Yeah, I, I just thought that would, that was nice to have the, like, lights out there and the ashes because mm-hmm. like they would always be out there in space that means i mean in theory obviously the leds would burn out but... <laughs> yeah yeah they used to be party yeah this is another kind of short one that i didn't didn't feel a lot of time to get it really attached to it and there's not even really much of like a plot for this one it's just kind of this letter it's from the lawyer who was in that um the void in that third story yeah I, well i th- i thought that this was a really beautiful one Oh, really? Oh, okay. That's interesting. Did you want to go into the letter a little bit? Because, like I said, there's not a lot of plot to summarize, okay. really. Maybe maybe I'll go into it, and then we'll see what you think afterwards. Sure. Um, so basically, yeah, um, I actually forgot they mentioned the lawyer, so I was like, I know this was a guy that was in there, but I didn't know which specific one, so that's something. <laughs> mm. um, so yeah, this is... Um, people have woken up from their comas um, at this point... The plague is technically cured, and uh, I would say that this is 2039. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is a letter uh, that a man who is in a coma in that void writes to the people in this neighborhood, basically inviting them to a, like a, a block party or a picnic or something, um, just kind of like inviting them to socialize and connect and move forward uh because since they've woken up they have just kind of been on their own you know these people have been in comas some of them for years and in a way they were together uh if any of that was even real uh (laughs) in that void but in reality uh they woke up and you know for a lot of them their whole families were dead uh, and years had passed and they went home to, to empty houses and the whole society had changed around them because a lot of these people fall into comas at the very beginning of the plague before society even changed that much. And so now, yeah, they're, they're completely alone and uh, he's just trying to find a way for them to socialize. The one thing is that he talks about people... He mentions uh, Mabel, who comes up in a later story, uh, yeah. a woman who was living in Japan for most of the plague, but came home to America to see her parents, and she was all covered in different tattoos. Oh, okay. Hmm. He mentions Dennis, uh, who is now his boss, um, and he works um, at basically a company where they manage the social media profiles of people who've died and <laughs> respond to their messages and basically pretend to be them <laughs> i was like Which wow very sad yeah that was a weird weird nope poor dennis that's where he ends up after the lg hotels yeah but maybe he likes it <laughs> and uh, yeah could do yeah he talks you know he talks about mabel about um the different tattoos on her body and he says you know i shouldn't know but i do 
the stories that each tattoo tells because he learned all that in uh when he was in the void even though she wasn't in the void he just he saw all that in these little glowing orbs right so Mm. and he talks about how he never socialized with his family or he never socialized with the neighborhood before like before the plague um now you know all he wants is to be able to connect with people but he's afraid and he feels like everyone is afraid and he just wants to help everybody everybody come together and uh he also mentions the woman that was pregnant and says that uh her baby like remained in stasis the whole time and she successfully gave birth after she came out of her coma oh i must miss that a little bit yeah that's interesting Mm. uh which is why i said that that's not the baby that you were talking about Mm. yeah just talks about how people have been struggling to integrate back into the world and LG hotels have now turned into condos. Gas vehicles are being phased out. Just kind of a, a sad kind of story about um, he's just trying to reconnect where everybody is cut off from each other and alone. Yeah, I did appreciate kind of seeing what the life would be like for those coma patients after they, after they came back. It does seem very dour. He talks about, you know, waking up in, like, an airplane hangar, like, alone. Just, like, because they administered all the coma patients the, the the vaccine. That's what they did. Some of them woke up. Some of them didn't. Some of them just died. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he woke up in, like, a room full of, like, people, like, half awake, people in comas, people dying. There wasn't even, like, really, like, anyone there to greet him. He just kind of, like, got up and walked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of made me think of... Uh... 28 days later mm-hmm. the guy wakes up and everything's just kind of yeah because i guess the world at this point 2039 is in pretty pretty dire straits like things are not operating the way they used to and i mean things are starting to turn around at this point right because they just cured the plague but mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of the population's probably been wiped out yes so. i believe they said that uh 50 million people died altogether yeah it's a pretty big deal yeah but... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to say that this was like a bad one or anything like that. It was just another one of those short ones where I read it and it didn't leave that much of an impact. But it was, it was still a cool one. And I like that there was some kind of follow-up on that Void story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, do you remember this guy's name? Uh, Dan? Paul? Dan Paul? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because he comes up later on again as well. Oh, okay, sure. You don't have anything really to say about that one, though? Uh, no, I think I think that's about it. Okay. How come you didn't really feel a connection in, to it in any way? Mm, I mean, all these are kind of written from, like, a first-person perspective. Mm-hmm. This one was just kind of him, mainly just him, like, writing a letter. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't enough there to really pull me in. And then by the time I ended, I was like, oh, I was like, once I really started to kind of get in with this character, it just kind of ended. So I was like, oh. I can understand I mean, that. it makes sense. It makes sense for it to end where it did. Mm-hmm. But it was just kind of... It just felt like it was like maybe like five or six pages and then it was over. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the things that I typically f- complain about with short stories is once I kind of get hooked into them, then they end. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so. That's fair. But um, so what story number is this one? Oh, number 11. Uh, Melancholy Nights in a Tokyo Virtual Cafe. So this was a pretty cool one. Yeah, and this one takes place in 2040. 
So, ten years after the first story. Yeah, another one that takes place in Tokyo. Um, we have a lead named Akira. Was he also a, a coma person, or was he just someone who... Uh, no. No, he never had the plague. Never had the plague, okay. No, he just it just kind of like skipped over him. So yeah, what I can't remember is what how he... Because I know by the time the story starts, he's kind of like a homeless kind of person. He doesn't really have any family connection or anything. But I just can't remember how he gets to that point, or if they really explain it. Yeah, well, I mean, he's an adult. His mom, you know, lives somewhere else. His dad died of the plague. Yeah, and he's just kind of a loner, and in, in kind of a whole generation of a lot of people who don't have those kind of connections, and they just kind of live separate from each other. And as a way to try to find those connections, he visits this virtual cafe. He actually lives there, though. Yeah, yeah, I guess lives there, yeah. And I guess it's sort of like a, a social media platform, this kind of virtual world, where people go to, like, hang out, and there's kind of, like, chat rooms, things like that. Yeah. But instead of, like, just with text, you're with a virtual avatar, so. And the the VR cafe um, is owned by someone named Mrs. Takahashi, who also has um, a purple pendant, by the way. Oh, okay. I can't remember exactly how he meets the co-lead for this story. Um... He meets her. He meets her in an uh, in a support group. Well, the whole VR chat room that he goes in is basically a support group for plague survivors centering around suicide. Okay, sure. Uh, so like, people go there basically to find like suicide partners or to find like companies that are offering to like like assist in suicide. Uh, but he doesn't go there for that reason. He just goes. I don't know. To just kind of pretend to be someone different just kind of like hang out yeah and he meets this one single mother yoshiko and i love her uh her avatars like this cool pegasus and she has this beautiful little kind of world that she created for herself i thought all that stuff was really visual and, and cool in the story mm -hmm. really liked all that um and they develop a friendship that he kind of wants to kind of maybe develop into romance but she always kind of keeps him at an arm's length and he always kind of wants to push to, to meet in real life. And he's even seen her. She works in an area that he frequents. So he, he knows who she is in real life. But she kind of wants to keep their relationship just kind of stuck to this, this virtual cafe. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I guess as a way to kind of uh, better his situation, he takes a job with this old man. Um, and like I mentioned before, there's kind of been a little bit of uh, like conspiracy theory cult kind of element brewing throughout the story mm -hmm. we've seen kind of the background and this old man um i guess runs uh what would you call a magazine like that just i forget what they're called he just he just it's not even necessarily a magazine he just like makes flyers basically mm. for a doomsday cult yeah and he he's kind of a sad loner too this old man like his i guess there was a big terrorist attack that was associated with his group and he kind of lost his family. And this this is a this is a real terrorist attack. Oh, okay. That happened in Japan in uh, 1995. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that detail. Yeah. Yeah, and his family rejected him afterwards, and he's kind of, yeah, I guess still attached to it. He's like, oh, I guess maybe they weren't the true believers, or something. I wasn't. Uh, I was kind of like, uh, maybe it sounds like this kind of ruined your life. Maybe you should get away from it. But yeah, because they basically like released a like a poison in uh, like the subway stations that killed his daughter, or sorry, killed his uh, his wife. 
but right. he didn't have anything to do with that. Just like yeah. the the people that he was associated with did, but like not directly. Not like he knew the people who did it or anything. Yeah, and Akira takes the job and kind of goes around kind of spreading the flyers, even though he's like, uh, I don't agree with a lot of this stuff. Maybe some of it, like they got maybe some right ideas, but but he just takes it as a job. Yeah, but he kind of likes he kind of likes the flyers. Like not like he agrees with the doomsday part of it, but the flyers um, are actually basically like instructions, giving people ways that they can reconnect with each other and get off just living in like virtual worlds. Hmm. Yeah, and maybe that's some of his inspiration to try to connect to Yoshiko in, in real life rather than just living in the kind of virtual fantasy. Mm-hmm. And eventually, as the story goes on, he realizes that Yoshiko is actually the daughter of this this uh, this man here. His name is Seiji. Seiji? Seiji. Something like that. Yeah. And so I got the sense that maybe he wanted to try to find a way to reconnect them. Mm-hmm. But it never really comes to that because he's... Yeah, he thought about it, but he didn't know if it would like hurt them more. Especially, you know, like she could reject him. She might not want anything to do with her dad, but at the same time, maybe it would help her to know that her dad still cares about her and misses her and wishes that he was in her life. Yeah, and it's interesting at this point in the book because the plague's been cured, but Yoshiko's daughter, I guess, has been... Like, she was cured, but she was so kind of damaged. There's a lot of after effects from the plague, um, like organ damage and cancers and things that the vaccine couldn't cure. Yeah, and so even though her daughter's not dying from the plague, she's become something so different from the girl she remembered. And that's leading to a lot of, like, depression problems for Yoshiko. I guess that's why she was hanging on that suicide hotline. Um, And, of course, the problems with her family in the past. So she's not got a lot of great things going for her. And then eventually, yeah, she just, I guess she kind of loses the battle with her depression and kills herself and her daughter. Yeah, and then I can't remember, I can't remember exactly what happens after that. So he goes, he tries to go see her in person. Um, he finally makes a decision that day to, to go meet her in person, but she's not there. Then he goes back and... Uh, he goes to the VR world where she is uh, and finds that, you know, she's gone. She's left like a virtual version of herself there. That's kind of like an AI that's downloaded with uh, her personality and her memories so that he can like ask her questions and stuff. Mm. And, uh, and that kind of AI tells him that basically like the way that he felt about her wasn't necessarily like the connection that he felt to her wasn't necessarily like reciprocated on her end you know like she felt like he was like a nice guy you know a friendly acquaintance she didn't have like some strong romantic connection he had this idea in his head that like they they could be together he could take care of her and her daughter like like they had like like a really strong friendship or romance but it, you could tell from what she said that you know that, that's not really how she felt hmm. that you know he was just like a a nice kid basically that hmm. she she talked to when she was lonely yeah so that's that's kind of sad yeah i mean so much of this stuff is sad but (laughs) and then you know he does like he sees in the newspaper her and her kid on the page saying that they're dead so it kind of like confirms for him 
and uh, he asks for time off. He he thinks about telling her dad, but he's like, no, there's no point in doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asks for time off, says he's going to go to a funeral, and he goes and he visits her grave, and uh, he leaves some little toys and stuff there. And the story ends with him deciding that he's going to uh, call his mom and, uh, you know, tell her that he's been struggling, that he doesn't have anywhere to live, that he doesn't, like, have anyone in his life and kind of, you know, like, reach out and ask for support, which is what Yoshiko didn't, wasn't able to do. So that's Mm. kind of how that ended is that it kind of gave him the push to be like, I don't want to end up like this. Yeah, that's, that's a good ending for it. And I also thought it was interesting. I think this was maybe the only book in the whole story that wasn't written in first person perspective yeah that's true so i thought that was a kind of interesting change mm-hmm. but yeah i definitely like that one it, it felt very different from a lot of the other stories and i liked all the virtual world aspect i thought it had a very good visual quality to it so that's another standout what did you think about the suicide groups i mean it makes sense i mean <laughs> i feel like you could, yeah. you could probably find those today and yeah very sad there was a lot of commentary about how um like the government and social services were failing to help people and and suicide Mm. groups and uh organizations were basically filling in those gaps yeah and as we go on it does seem like the government is kind of not doing so well these days and so much of those kind of funeral services people sound like they're the ones with all the money Mm -hmm. a lot of the other services are not really there anymore Mm -hmm. so and this is, I mean, the stories only take place in America and Japan, but this is really, like, seems to be worldwide. Mm-hmm. Well, but I guess speaking of the uh, funer- funerary services, yeah, this next story focuses on a, a very particular brand of those funerary services. And Before You Melt Into the Sea. And this one was actually, <laughs> it's kind of similar to um, uh, Songs of Your Decay, where it's someone who has to work with someone who is dying. Um, although I think in this one it's because of cancer is caused by the virus, not because of the virus itself. Yeah. And connecting with someone who's in their last days kind of thing. But this one's kind of weird because it seems like this guy, because he works with um, some sort of funerary service where they turn your remains into kind of an art piece as you die. And so this is Mabel, who we mentioned from a previous story, and she's got all these tattoos that she wants to kind of preserve. And also create like an ice sculpture from her remains. And he spends a lot of time like interviewing her and kind of putting together her, her funerary plans. And kind of maybe falls in love with her, maybe? I wasn't sure if it was... I wouldn't say falls in love. I don't know, it got kind of weird near the end. It's more like, <laughs> it's just, you know, he feels a connection with her. That's not the same. You can't fall in love with someone from chatting with them on the internet and like a video call or two but you know uh Uh, it's just uh these kind of things form a kind of connection and a connection that can kind of feel like love in a way but it's not it's not the same as falling in romantic love well we always kind of differ on the definition of of that but either way some sort of deep infatuation that she definitely doesn't share and of course, the story's told told from his perspective, and... He just, he has a crush on her. Yeah, but some of the stuff, I just thought it came off as a little creepy. I don't think so. Well, well that's fair. But um, she wants her ice sculpture to be this, like, schooner's mixed 
it kind of changes throughout the little the little story there. I know that there was like a mermaid and a dragon kind of all put together. Was it those two on the schooner? Was I was a little I couldn't quite picture once they had like the full thing of it. I couldn't picture in my head what it would look like. I don't know. I'm not a visual person like that, so. Oh, okay. So I didn't really think about it because I can't um, visualize things in my mind. That's fair. Um, but this is this is the girl who was mentioned in the in the previous letter, Mabel. Yeah, yeah, and I guess yeah, because I, I I can't remember if they said that she was in a coma or not, but either way, she's no, she wasn't. Either way, she's she's dying here, but yeah, we kind of see he he's trying his best to do right by her, and at like the funeral, all the people are really appreciative of the work that he did, and then we get kind of kind of the last moments of him kind of saying goodbye to the remains himself taking her out to the water mm-hmm. and and that's the stuff i mean i didn't really find it creepy until those kind of last moments when he's when he like puts the the ice sculpture in the water and then he like climbs in with it and he's like cherishing it that's kind of like ah, something about this just plays as creepy he's not <laughs> cher- i mean he's meant he's meant to stay with it until it melts it was just it's part of his job he was like holding on to it it's just something about it played as creepy i mean clearly yeah so that it doesn't float away uh, i don't know i don't know um <laughs> and uh dan paul the guy who wrote the letter he comes to the funeral along with uh along with her mom and he's basically the one that coordinated the whole event which, I thought that was cool. Which is yeah. really nice because, you know, it shows that he was able to connect with the neighborhood. and Yeah, and it was nice to yeah get that continuation to that little story. I like that little piece. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, this yeah this one was definitely, I mean, it's another really short one. It was one that I didn't uh, didn't really come away super positive on it. But... And her tattoos were also taken off her body and framed. Yeah. And uh, they said that she sent one to him, but we never find out which one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's another little piece where I thought they kind of left it a little open-ended there. I was kind of like, oh, I kind of was curious. But but it was a creepy idea to think that people who are dying would like have their uh, tattoos framed, like the, the piece of their skin just preserved. Yeah. I thought that was another kind of creepy idea. And uh, I thought it was interesting that... Uh... That Mabel chose to, uh, she wanted her, her boat to be launched in, uh, Alaska, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't in Siberia, but it was, like, in view of Siberia, so it was kind of, like, close to where the plague started. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because, yeah, she said something about, you know, wanting to end off near basically what, what killed her. Oh, but, uh, do you feel like you have much, much more for that one? No. Yes, and we move on to the kind of last, or I guess the penultimate story, but the last one that kind of feels the, the, the same as the other ones, which is Grave Friends. It's another one set in Japan, and it's about, uh, I would say, like, maybe someone around our age, like maybe early 20s or something like that, or late 20s. Mm-hmm. And she's spent a lot of time away from her family in Japan. She's been living in America, and coming back, she's got kind of... That same theme of, of being disconnected from your 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 family and trying to reconnect with them and although I guess in this case it's almost them trying to or her fearing that they're mm-hmm. not gonna be able to reconnect with her. Uh, the interesting thing about this story is this story takes place a long time in the future from the other ones. Oh yes. Uh, it takes place in like um, twenty one oh five. So 
you know, a good 70 years after the plague started, which means basically every single person in this story uh, was born after the plague. Yeah, and I thought that was that was super cool to see where, where things were at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Like, like they talk about, uh, like there's all those like funerary towers. They're just like everywhere now. Like every city that you go to is they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the street that she lived on, the people there weren't very wealthy. And so as a way to kind of save costs and all the funerals, they all put all their remains in the in one big kind of uh, urn, big like egg urn. And it's created this sort of familial bond with all the people in the neighborhood. And the person that was at the matriarch was the reason that this girl's coming home. Um, her grandma, she was kind of the person who brought everyone together. And they're all kind of celebrating and mourning her loss. Yeah, so uh, the the main character's name is Rena. And uh, she left her family, you know, a number of years ago, kind of under false pretenses, said she was just going on a work trip. And she went to America and basically just didn't come home. She got married. She... She's now pregnant, uh, and the family feels really betrayed by that because uh, they just have this kind of strong, you know, so much of Japan is, like, basically islands now. Uh, like, the cities don't really exist anymore. Like, everybody just kind of, like, stays in their area, and it's just kind of what you do, and it, it's seen as, like, a really big betrayal to her family that she would leave. But she comes back because her, her grandmother died. And uh, she's still kind of, uh, you know, afraid to tell her family that, you know, she doesn't want to die in Japan. She doesn't want to be in the, the neighborhood urn. And, uh, you know, they, they try to guilt her a little bit. And she doesn't tell them that uh, when she left, her grandma actually gave her money and, like, encouraged her to go. Because they're like, oh, like, she was so sad when you left. Like, she'd be so ashamed of you. And, you know, she just kind of lets them have that. But she knows that, like... Even though maybe it did hurt her, like, she supported her in it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to see, like, how, how you know, it's been, you know, 70 years since the plague. Um, you know, probably 60 years since the plague was cured. But death is still a huge part of society. Like, it didn't, like, it, it permanently altered the world, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is, like, something that's part of the story or like made up for the story or if it's something that's done in some cultures but like they do this thing where they like pick through the urn for like bone fragments and uh like keep the bone fragments as like little mementos and uh her and her mom doing that for whatever reason kind of like helps them bond and like come together and they kind of kind of mend their relationship over that mm-hmm. but what's interesting to me is that uh they say that uh, the grandmother um, was born in 2034, so like basically right when the plague was like starting, and that she survived the plague as an infant. So what I think is that the grandmother was the baby that they sent out of that void. Yeah, she even says that she has dreams of crawling over people in a black space at some point. Exactly. Yeah, so because you said that they never followed up on that, but that's that's what I think. Yeah, I followed up. They ne- they don't say it for sure. Like most of the other stories, they they uh, they like say it definitively at some point. This one, they just kind of hinted at, but I mean, that's what I think. Yeah, followed up, but I'm I'm still like, what was like? How did they connect her as a baby? Because you thought 
You thought the baby, the baby was the pregnant. Yeah, I thought maybe like that was her mom, but again, like was the baby in a coma too, or that's what I'm confused about. Like I don't get. The... Yeah, that's what they're they're saying. The baby was in a coma, but it came out of the coma. The the people basically just like saved. It. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, sure. She came out of the coma. Oh, okay, that's. So th they say that she survived the plague as an infant. So my. My theory is that, yeah, the, when she was, like, a baby, she got the plague and fell into a coma. Maybe only for, like, a very tiny amount of time. And she just came out of it and she lived. And I guess I guess you could just say that the, the void space was, yeah, just another way the, the virus operated. Exactly. It's created, like, this psychic connection between her. I mean, it's kind of vague, but it is, I guess it is what it is. Mm -hmm. But I definitely didn't notice that the first time I read it. But the second time I read it, that's what I thought was that grandma was that baby. Yeah, and I guess another minor connection, they mentioned that uh, the dog Hollywood is kept in their cabinet as like kind of a a piece of the shrine to one of her great aunts. Oh, I missed that. I was like, oh, there you go. Another little connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually in that story, they mentioned uh, the neighborhood walks as well in the story about the, the robot dogs. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, but I didn't, I, I didn't know if that was anything. But when you say that as well, then obviously it probably takes place in the same neighborhood years later. Yeah. And I like how uh, she's got, like, these two, I don't know if they're cousins or just two other girls that are on the block that are mm -hmm. kind of like cousins since they're all family. And they're kind of like, yeah, like, if people view us as, like, a cult, this little neighborhood get-together gang or whatever we are. Mm -hmm. And they're, like, completely not into it. Yeah. So that's kind of nice for her, too, because she's so detached from it all. It all seems strange to her. So. Yeah, because it's basically just all the old people that think that. But, you know, the funny thing to think is... Uh... You know, you look at the all these like elderly people, and you're like, oh, like those old people, but you know, they're like they would be younger than you know me and you. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's fair. It's yeah. just kind of funny to think about, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice that even though yeah, she does come back and kind of use them all as kind of weird. By the end, she she kind of appreciates the the way that these people have managed to stay connected to each other. Mm -hmm. It's just another way to yeah stay connected. Yeah, so I definitely like that one. Um, yeah, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if I have much more to say about it, but but another good one. Yeah, and uh, this is just completely random, but since we're kind of like in the timeline of like way in the future, twenty one oh five, it's just interesting to uh, also point out that uh, in twenty eighty, according to the letter that uh, they sent uh, up to space, um, the tip of Florida went underwater. Hmm. It's just interesting that this. The story's not just focusing on uh, the effects of the plague, but also, obviously, climate change as time goes on, kind of happening at the same time. And I mean, of course, the plague itself was basically caused by climate change, so. Yeah. Or at least, uh, yeah, exposed. Yeah. Yeah, which is a cool bit at the beginning that they had these kind of virus specialists, yeah, almost intentionally trying to discover these, these things, because mm -hmm. they were like, oh, we need to, uh, we got to catch them before they're just released accidentally into the water supply yeah exactly so it's like it's hard to be mad at them because it's like well they're trying to mitigate the risks yeah and you know they even said something about it like um even if the virus does get out and people do get it like maybe it'll wake them up to the the dangers of what's happening here like in the ice yes yeah, so there's a, a new take on kind of exploring a climate change story mm -hmm. that you don't see as much that kind of potential threat it's definitely a, a legitimate threat so Oh, but to kind of get to the, the final story, since we're touching back to the, the beginning again, mm -hmm. it's fitting for uh, for this one. The Scope of Possibility. 
So this one was a big surprise for me. Uh, once I started reading it, I was like, oh, I was not expecting us to go in this direction for the, uh, the final story. But it takes place, I don't even know how many years before the, the start of the story. Be before the Earth existed. Yeah, so I guess billions of years. And it takes place on, I'm guessing, what was the, the ruins of that rogue planet. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't entirely sure. Maybe you, maybe you know better than I do. Um, were they sending out these kind of seedlings... Um, because their planet was dying? No, this that's their that's their purpose. Their purpose okay. is to create worlds. They're world builders, basically. So their purpose is to grow planets and send them out into the universe. And they are only at this one galaxy, our galaxy. Uh, but like they they don't know for sure. But they theorize that there's you know a civilization of world builders at the beginning of every galaxy. And, uh, basically, yeah, um, they, they grow planets the same way that we would grow, like, a vegetable. They live for, you know, millenniums, um, and they just slowly grow their planet, and once it's ready, they send it out into space, and then they themselves go to the planet and live on it, and that's kind of their purpose. And, uh, before, before any of them were even born, the elders predetermined, like, <laughs> like, who would make what planet and when each planet would go out into the universe and like how far apart each planet would be space and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a set amount of them. And once they're all gone, then the planet's just empty. And that's that, you know, it's, it's their purpose oh. fulfilled. Yeah. That's the piece I was missing that last bit, that there was only a finite amount of them. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of cool. They, they, uh, they have these probability lenses where they can kind of see what the potential future is of this place. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's how they assign, like, okay, let's look at this part of space. That's what it could be. Let's send this person. So all of that stuff was cool. But that's only really the beginning of the story. Well, the real focus is um, this one character. Did, did she have a name? Let me see. Uh, she did, but it was like, they didn't say it until the very end. Oh, okay. Um, oh, but it's uh, about probability scopes, since you just mentioned it, because I took a note on it. It says, probability scopes are an important part of our technology. They're like telescopes, but fitted with lenses made from the jelly-like remains of our ancestors. They allow us to see through reality based on the contents of each seed. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty interesting idea. Mm -hmm. um, but the main focus is, I guess just to spoil it, is Clara from the first story, seeing what her life was up until the point where she got to that that point yeah but i mean she was she was like a million people like it's not important that she was that she was clara clara yeah a million people yeah but just for a character that we've seen yeah. previously that was kind of well we've seen a lot of characters that she was yeah well maybe do you want to give the summary for this one i'm i'm stumbling over <laughs> sure. a little bit so. <laughs> yeah so um well um so basically like her on this um world building planet she has a family she has a husband and a child and, uh, you know, they kind of show her talking to her child and showing her child her seed, which is Earth, and telling her child, like, my whole life, uh, this is what I've been building, and this is where I'm going to go one day. And basically, like, their, their purpose once they go to their planet is to just live as whatever kind of being they want on, on that planet and just kind of live among... Yeah, the planet, and, you know, what she says to her daughter there, she says, I'll be one of them, um, I'll be among their first and their last, but I'll always be your mother. Um, and she's sad to leave her daughter, 
because uh, when when her parents left her, she was a lot older. She feels like she's leaving her daughter too soon, but she makes this kind of deal with her husband that one day he'll take over taking care of her daughter's um, planet and he'll send her daughter to Earth to be with her. Mm. And uh, she gives her daughter one of those purple pendants and she has one. She says if they're ever close to each other, the purple pendants will glow so they'll know that they're together. So that's where the purple pendants come in. So yeah, she she goes to Earth and you know she, she lands on Earth and she starts off as basically a small sea creature says so the ancestor of a starfish and uh when like i want to say when they were in the pods in that void and they saw like something crashing to sea that's likely what they saw is like the very beginning when she first came to earth mm. yeah so uh basically um she lives on earth for a million years before she starts her first family which is when she gives birth to the pre-human that we see in the very beginning, Annie. So she gets pregnant and with like a Neanderthal family and she gives birth to that child. Uh, but she realizes that she imperfectly shapeshifted uh, into her human form. And so she gave her baby like parts of like her alien DNA instead of just human DNA. And at this time, like, the baby doesn't even have a name. Like, they don't even have human language at this point. They're, like, speaking in trills. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the baby, like, glows like a nebula, it says. And around her eighth birthday, she started giving people around her the virus. And everyone started dying, uh, including her daughter. So that same virus that, you know, the world 30,000 years later dies of is the virus that killed her family at that time, which is very sad. Mm-hmm. Kind of would be sad to come back around to that, right? Yeah, and especially considering she's the one that <laughs> accidentally unleashed it later on, too. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> um, Oops. Well, not necessarily. Because I feel like she went... The reason that she was so intent to go there was because she knew it was there. And she was trying to stop it from being unleashed in the first place. Yeah, that's why I say accidentally unleash it again but I, i'm i'm saying i'm not just because she was there doesn't mean that she's the reason it was unleashed but wasn't she the one who disc I, I guess they were probably already searching there so yeah exactly like sure she discovered the body but it's not like they wouldn't have discovered it yeah maybe she went to try to control the environment and then it all went went wrong exactly but but anyways yes yeah, she and she covered up her her daughter's body in like a special a special cloak she made with all the different seashells she collected during her early travels which explains why she had like that weird clothing right mm -hmm. which everyone was so puzzled by yeah and i like that uh they say that she like made a little like like art piece of the like her home mm -hmm. and because early on in that first story there was someone who was like hey there's this weird art drawing here what if this was alien origins yeah yeah that's true that's a good point. So, hey, that guy was right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and it says she moved on and perfected her human form, but she didn't start another family for a really long time because she was really afraid of the same thing happening. But she helped humanity along, you know, even though, like, I think that they were discouraged from doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, they were meant to just kind of live there. But she, you know, helped them, um, taught them how to fish, and 
just kind of help them advance. And they talk about how Atlantis existed and was the first advanced civilization. Uh, but it was destroyed because of her. So because of that, she decided to like stop helping the humans and just kind of like stay out of, leave them alone for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then moving on, you know, it says that she date she dated like a lot of um, important figures throughout history and like shared with them the truth about who she was and where she came from, uh, such as like Galileo and Isaac Newton and people like that. Mm-hmm. And probably the reason that they're important. Exactly. Yeah. Because, like, like for example, it says that she helped Isaac Newton with uh, his math. And, uh, yeah, in the 1800s, it says that she got married and started another family, but soldiers came and killed them. And so she, you know, she had a lot of different families and children and husbands and just kind of moved on from human life to human life and had a lot of losses. You know, there was one point where she was even in a with her family in a Japanese concentration camp during World War Two, And the whole time, you know, she's, she's, you know, just hopeful, looking around, hoping that uh, her daughter, her original daughter, Nuri, will show up with the other pendants and she'll finally be reunited. Because, you know, it's not like she'll know what she looks like and she has no way to know when she'll come. It's been millions of years at this point, right? <laughs> and, yeah, they go over her being Clara and, uh, you know, trying to obviously stop the climate change and help people and then we find out that she is she was Teresa as well and that she's actually telling this story to Brian uh in the future near the end of their lives or near the end of Brian's life I should say Mm -hmm. and I guess he's dying uh likely of old age and uh you know she's telling him you know even though everyone else has kind of forgotten about it, she she still keeps track of the spaceship that his son is on, like, you know, waiting to hear from them, hoping. Uh, obviously, at this point, they, won't, they wouldn't have heard anything from them. It's been hardly any time for them. I thought that was a really cool idea that she would still be around to, like, keep an eye on that and know what happened to them. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, um, right before Brian dies, she shows him like her true form, which is like a glowing ball of light, which they also saw in the orbs. Mm. And uh, you know, at the end of the story, it doesn't uh, it doesn't end with her finding her daughter, but just kind of like her hoping that she will. But uh, I believe that the lady who owned that VR cafe must have been her daughter, because she also had a purple pendant. But if Teresa lived until Brian was old then she couldn't have been the same person, right? Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. And also, there's the part where Aubrey and Laird see a ship go into the ocean, so that was probably her daughter, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that part. Yeah. So I I think that that lady in the VR cafe is probably her daughter, and you know, maybe they haven't found each other, but now you know they're both on Earth, and they both have their necklaces, and they're bound to find each other one day, which is kind of nice. Yeah, that is nice. Um, and then it ends with a letter too, but it's kind of separate. So is there, like, do you want to talk more about the the rest of the story now that I've kind of summarized it? Um, yeah, I thought it was cool seeing all the, the different experiences. And yeah, you mentioned, like, the internment camp. Definitely another, even though this is very different in, in kind of style than all the other ones in the, the book, which is kind of the, the scope of it. It still has that very kind of dour quality. 
I think um, it felt kind of similar to the one uh, about Claire, the one that was narrated by Claire's mom. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair, actually. Yeah, I could see that. Because, yeah, it's another one that takes place over a huge amount of time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, it was a cool way to, it was a cool way to kind of, I mean, it's not the complete end, but it was a cool way to end it, kind of wrapping things up. and. It explained a lot of things. Yeah. It was a very interesting concept, the world building. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a good way to to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Even though I was it was not what I was expecting at all and I was kind of like, whoa, took me a little bit to kind of uh maybe adjust to it after the other stories that I was reading which were much more kind of low key kind of things. Yeah. And so. there was there's another part that I thought was interesting when she was talking to someone in in her past and and they asked her like why the spaces between civilizations were so great and she said that um like they space them far apart from each other on purpose because they can't really ha- handle being close to each other because they'll like destroy each other <laughs> and uh so the spaces are like a deterrent but like also like could be like a challenge for them to try to find each other and maybe even find like the remnants of their society which they did which is kind of nice uh and they do mention in the story that uh humans were the first like planet to reach interstellar travel. Um, and they also mentioned that, you know, uh, another reason that we never found life uh, on other planets was because most of the time the civilizations die out before their light ever reaches each other because they're so far apart. Yeah, it's definitely a worry that you hear with scientists saying, saying that kind of stuff. Like, oh, there could have been all these civilizations that, yeah, by the time we finally get a chance to look, like they're, the lights, like they're already gone. Mm-hmm. So, how sad would that be? We finally discover another civilization, then they're already long dead. But, <laughs> oh, but I was going to say... Sad in some ways. But... I was going to say, when you were talking about how her natural form was like that ball of light, kind of made me wonder, in that void space, if that was the original, um, her daughter that she accidentally made kind of wrong, that created the virus, if maybe she somehow still lived. Oh, like they were like inside her mind somehow, or like inside her consciousness. Yeah, like maybe the virus is what were remains of her or something. Oh, I see what you mean. Like like she is the virus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. It would make sense. Oh, but um yeah, do you have any last words for that that last one before we go to this tiny little little epilogue piece? No, I don't think so. Yeah, and the last one's basically just a little a little letter sent uh from the the USS Yamato Mm -hmm. which they sent it like I assume right when they got to where they were finally going so it was sent at the end of that story with uh, Cliff's wife yeah 6,000 years later and the last time they heard from Earth was a thousand years before yeah it's crazy yeah and they're talking about it like oh we've got all these letters and it'll take I think they said like a millennia or uh, it would take generations to read through it all yeah it says millennia of history that will require generations to read through let alone understand yeah, so I think that's interesting. They have, like, a whole new history to kind of research as they're trying to kind of establish their own. Yeah, and so. it says the last transmission they received more than a thousand years ago was when humanity constructed a Dyson sphere around the sun, fueling metropolises on Mars and Luna and Titan. Yeah, pretty cool. Where's the sequel book? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess this one just came out. <laughs> but no, that's interesting. It's, it's It's always cool to see stories that take place over such a long period of time. Yeah, and uh, things change. I think the the captain's uh, commentary on how, like, are they even really like the same, the same 
people? Like, do they even have anything in common anymore? It's really interesting. Because, yeah, I mean, what do we have in common with humans that lived 6,000 years ago? Did they even exist 6,000 years ago? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know history at all. So, you know. Hey, the world's only 6,000 years old. So, uh. I mean, it's 2022, so I assume humans have only existed since 2022 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? Like, what do we have in common with people from 6,000 years ago? Like, nothing. Uh, Obviously, obviously some things, but you know what I mean. Yeah. A lot of the same religions are still kicking around, you know, changed a little bit, but uh, it's very strange to think. But (laughs) Christianity didn't exist 6,000. No, that's true. That's true. Neither did yeah, Islam. I mean, did Judaism? Probably. And then, like, I'm sure it's a lot of, like, Eastern religions. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, that wraps up the, uh, the book. But, um, I just, I just thought it was interesting to think that they don't even know for sure that humans still exist since it's been a thousand years. They could have all just died. Yeah, they could have, doing that Dyson sphere, they could have fucked up and just. <laughs> for all, for all they know, they are the last humans yeah it would just be so weird to feel so cut off like like to be like us like like normal like today humans and then all of a sudden be six thousand years in the future looking back and be like do they still exist is there anybody still there yeah and everything that you it's it's even weird to think because all the crew would have seen so much change and see all these weird things mm-hmm. and then you wake up all the people who've been in like cryo all that time it's just like, oh yeah, when you guys were all asleep, we saw these planets, we ran into these aliens that kind of killed some crew members, and... But they painted it all, which is really nice. Oh, but it'd be so weird. I'd be like, oh, I'd be so choked that you uh, let me sleep through all that. Like, wake me up. I want to see it. I mean, it was pretty much only the kids and the lottery passengers. Everybody else got woken up. That's fair. Like, poor Yumi. She missed out on all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's the there's the murals to uh, check things out. Yeah. It'd be so weird to just wake up and you're 6,000 years in the future. Super cool, though. I mean, it'd be weird. It would be weird for everyone because I assume they were really only awake for what amounted to, like, maybe a year or two in human years. Yeah. Yeah, I think they say that. It's pretty crazy. Earth years, I should say, not human years. Hmm. Well, but uh, do you feel like you feel like you're at the, the final thoughts for it? What you thought overall? Yeah, I'm not really good at that part. Yeah, that's fair. Um, all to say overall, yeah, this, I've never really read a book done in this style where it's kind of like, I mean, all these different characters that sort of interrelate, but a lot of them just don't. A lot of them are just kind of like, especially as we go on to the story, we get a lot more kind of separated characters. Mm-hmm. And so it was cool. It was a cool experiment and I thought it worked pretty well, better than I may have expected. I think it worked very well. I'd like to read another book written this way. Yeah, maybe check out World War Z. I know that was a big... No, uh... I don't want to read World War Z. I'm a, <laughs> I have a bias against... Well, why? I don't know. I just do. Everyone said it was a great book. But, um... But yeah, I would definitely check out another book t- done in this, this story. Style? Um, definitely. Yeah, this style, thank you. <laughs> and even a sequel, I would say, could be cool. You know, there's all those, uh... Find out what happens to our little starship out there, and... I don't know could be interesting i think a sequel would be cheap in a way that's fair i feel like ambiguity is important for like the meaningfulness to really come through yeah i suppose that's fair oh and it's fitting timing to read kind of a virus centric centric story because mm-hmm. uh 
not just because of the pandemic, but and this was written pre-COVID, which is interesting. Yeah, but just a, maybe a month or two, or maybe like three months ago, I did that big virus movie retrospective. So mm-hmm. it's kind of in a headspace to get back into that. Yeah, I think uh, what I really liked about this book is that every story had like a strong sense of just like the like the the longing for human connection. Every story had that in some way. Mm-hmm. Like a desire to connect, a desire to feel a sense of community or a sense of family or just some kind of not being alone. But uh, it was portrayed quite differently in each story, even though like the themes are the same. Mm-hmm. So and I like that. Yeah, and it's just cool to it's cool to see all the different ways that the world would be shaped by that kind of disastrous pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like ours, there's definitely been some noticeable changes, especially I feel like in a lot of political senses a lot of things have definitely more solidified in ugly ways mm-hmm. but the pervasive like death just taking over everything we haven't experienced so it was interesting to see haven't experienced yet but i mean yeah. most of those stories took place you know at least like three or four years into the pandemic which only starts like now yeah yeah, so it's you know it's it's cool to see, and especially over such a long period of time, mm-hmm. it's cool to see how how society would com- completely change by it. Yeah, but I think that's my final thoughts, though. I don't I don't like to give final thoughts. I have something against it. Well, do you have a do you have another book to announce for your uh, your little witch's cauldron that you've been you've been brewing for for books? I don't do that. It'll be a surprise. Sure, <laughs> sure. sounds good. Well. Well, thank you very much for the book suggestion. I enjoyed reading it very much so. And uh, You're welcome. Maybe next time you could just read a book without having to do a podcast on it. I'll just hold off. You know, I'll just uh I've got to, I've gotta read Dune again. I read that every year, so I gotta gotta get started on that. Have you ever considered reading a different book? <laughs> well, I definitely do read different books, but uh any books that I suggested? Well you did suggest that I read Dune. No I didn't before we met. No, I didn't. Before we met, I was like, hey, have you ever read Dune? Oh, no, I mean before we met, just in general. Like when, when I first read Dune, yeah. When you were, like, a child? Yeah, I went into a coma for a little while, and <laughs> suddenly someone was there telling me to read Dune. And, I, I think yeah. you're confused. That wasn't me. <laughs> I've never been in someone's coma. Well, maybe maybe we'll read Coma, the Michael Crichton book that I've never read. I'm- I don't want to. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that I'm the one that chooses the books for this book club because because I'm the boss. Yeah, you did have the title at the beginning, the Brianna uh, Forsett Podcast Point book reading what? Uh, tour. <laughs> That's not what it's called. <laughs> it's called the Brianna's The Boss Book Club Podcast. Oh, boy. Well, well thanks for, for coming on again. I, I definitely enjoyed reading and talking about this book, and we shall talk about another one in the future. Maybe. And, uh... Do I get paid to be on this podcast? Yes, you do. How yeah. much? Um, well, we gotta get to we gotta work on the contracts, so I we'll have to uh, talk about that afterwards. Do your other podcast partners get paid? Yeah, I've got a, a good situation for paying. Oh, hundred thousand a podcast well, usually. Is. What? <laughs> well, I'm being severely underpaid. <laughs> you owe me back pay. No, I don't do back pay. That's the thing. That's... What? I'm gonna sue you. Yeah, tune in next time to find out how the lawsuit went. (laughs) And, And that's all. Okay, bye. Peace.